Hello, and welcome to the Particular Baptist Podcast. I'm here, uh, my name is Daniel Vincent, uh, your host today. I'm here with my fill-in co-host, uh, Travis Rogers. Sean is usually on the show with us. Uh, he's taking a break today, so Travis is filling in. Um, but we have a packed episode today. Um, we're going to be talking about some pretty deep topics. Um, first, though, if you would like to find out more about um, what we do at The Particular Baptist, you can find us on our blog at theparticularbaptist.net. Uh, we're also on YouTube, and uh, we're also on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, as well as some other platforms. So feel free to check those out. Uh, but we have two guests with us today. Uh, we have Dr. Leighton Flowers, who is head of evangelism and apologetics at Texas Baptist. Um, he is the host of the Soter Soteriology 101 podcast that discusses the, talk, uh, the doctrine of salvation. Um, you can also find some more material of his at soteriology101.com. He's also the author of God's Provision for All, A Defense of God's Goodness, and The Potter's Promise, A Biblical Defense of Traditional Soteriology. And we also have Eric Hernandez. He is Apologetics League and Millennial Specialist for Texas Baptist. Um, he earned his education from San Jacinto College, Next Level Institute, and Trinity College of the Bible and Theological Seminary. And he, like Dr. Flowers, is an accomplished debater. So welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah. So with that, Travis, uh, I'll let you dive into our topic. Sure. Uh, Leighton, Eric, again, as you know, Dan said, so thank you for being here. This is, you know, going to be a good episode. I think we can, we kind of discussed through via either reviews of videos or reviews of podcasts or blog rather. And then I know in a recent ep talk you were doing with Derek, you know, the two of us, I kind of conversed a little bit through the, the chat portion on there. We found out your son is in the Academy, which is really awesome. You know, being a Navy retiree, this is my DD-214 beard right here. <laughs> so, that's, that's great. I love know, it. Just, just had my ceremony in August, you know, so that, that was really cool you know, when I heard that. And then Eric, you know, I was actually, we, my third ship was called the San Jack, USS San Jacinto. So a uh, little tie in right there as well. But uh, yeah, so... I think it's uh, no secret to any of us that we do have very real differences in the realms of soteriology, kind of where we come from. And I think it goes all the way down to differences of how we even view God, you know, you know, possibly, you know, I think it would have to be, you know, so, but we'll unpack some of this as we go through, but too often these kind of discussions, they do devolve into finger pointing, trying to prove that one is right over the other, trying to make the other look bad at the expense of looking good. And I think that's not helpful at all, especially as we're trying to promote God and glorify God and not ourselves. So hopefully we can set the example in this episode as mature men of the faith, even if we have our differences. So that's really the tone that we want to set with all of this. And I'm sure everybody in here would agree on that. Uh, so again, what we do have differences though, and we don't wanna make light of those. You know, We need to be firm in what we believe in, in our convictions, while also showing the love of Christ to one another, again, as that example. So I do have two very basic questions before we start into our overall topics, which are going to be God's decree, sin's authorship, and man's state before God. But in a nutshell, I know when I, Leighton, for instance, whenever I first heard about you, I was hearing you debate somebody, I don't even remember who, and I just automatically assumed the Arminian position versus the Calvinist position. And as I came to hear more of you, I realized that's not at all your position on there, and you've never claimed no such position. So in, in just a summary to 
clear the air for anybody else who might be confused, how would you describe provisionism? Dr. Oh, Flowers, oh. you're muted. Oh. Sorry about that. <laughs> it's okay. I knew I was going to do that. I was trying to <laughs> trying to help the, the sound quality, and I, I knew I'd forget. Um, I, I know there's a there's a desire to stay away from all the isms, uh, the man-made terms that we use as labels. And I'm not uh, trying to create another ism to be uh, controversial or to try to, yeah. you know, skirt the issue. I, I I understand when people call me an Armenian. I know what they mean. I don't really usually take that much issue with with it. Southern Baptists typically don't like being called an Armenian, though, because that's the Methodist, you know, or that's that's the uh, Church of Christ or some other group out there that's not Baptist. Baptist have typically been some modified form of more Calvinistic-esque theology, uh, kind of a two-point Calvinist, you'll hear it say. But I don't think that's very helpful either, because it ends up de- redefining the, the two points that we say we affirm, because it's not the same way a Calvinist would define the two or three points. And so it, it just becomes confusing when you try to define yourself in that way. And so really the word provisionism just derived from the concept and idea of the word provide, which is just simply to say, we believe that God provides the means of salvation for every single person, that no one uh, perishes for a lack of atonement, that no one ends up going to hell because God didn't want them or because God didn't provide for them or because Jesus didn't die for them. God provides for all people. And therefore, anyone who perishes ultimately perishes because they refuse to accept the truth so as to be saved. Uh, They could have been saved. They should have repented and been uh, uh, believed so as to be saved. And the only reason they didn't do so is because of their own responsibility, their own choice to refuse the offer, the well-meant offer of God in calling them to salvation. So provisionism is just an overarching umbrella term that I think even Arminians fit within, and that is that they believe God provides for every single man, every single man, woman, boy, and girl, and so do we. And so even Arminians, I think, fall underneath the, the label, the overarching label of provisionist. God provides for all people. Okay. And uh, regarding that, would you prefer more to classical Arminianism or more of the modern mainstream Arminianism of today? Because they're very different. Yeah, there, there are different, uh, just like with Calvinists, there it's not a monolithic group. There are many I different agree. kinds of Calvinists. Yeah. Uh, uh, Armoraldians, there are, uh, you know, uh, Wesleyan, I mean, I'm, excuse me, uh, more Dordian type Calvinists. There are high Calvinists, low Calvinists, moderate Calvinists, uh, superlapsarian, sublapsarian, infralapsarian, all the kinds of nuances in between. Uh, and, and same thing with Arminianism. There, there are different kinds of uh, Arminians, Wesleyan Arminian, more classical Arminians. Uh, Roger Olson disagrees with, you know, Brian Abishano, who's the, the leader of the Society of Evangelical Arminians on a few points here and there. But um, but but basically, uh, the, where I differ from typical Arminians is with regard to the doctrine of total inability or total depravity uh, with regard to the, uh, the, the nature of man from birth. Uh, some people assume, I think, wrongly that, that all people are born guilty due to the sin of Adam and therefore are in a condition by which they cannot respond positively to the offers of grace through the gospel. Um, and even some Armenians adopt that worldview, and then therefore they insert what's called prevenient grace, the concept and idea that God somehow miraculously changes the very nature of man, causing them to have a free will that they lost due to the fall, and giving them back uh, the capacity to accept or reject the gospel. I, I find that to be unnecessary baggage simply because the Bible never teaches, as far as I can tell, that people lost the ability to respond to God because of the fall. 
I think the fall resulted in separation due to rebellion. We were cast out of the garden, but that doesn't mean you can't respond to God when he comes uh, incarnate to us and reveals himself to us and calls us to faith and repentance. I don't think there's anything about the natural condition of man which suggests that we can't uh, confess our, our brokenness, our fallenness, our bondage to sin in light of the gospel appeal. Okay. Uh, gosh, solid answer. All right, thanks. Sure. Uh, another little bit of an intro question, and that first one was actually, I guess, meant to be for either one of you or Eric, but uh, I forgot to mention that. So, but regarding Calvinism, I know you've stated on multiple occasions that you used to be a Calvinist, and you know, you know, Calvinistic Reformed Church, and you kind of broke away from that. You may have stated it, and I just haven't heard it. But what was, I would say, what would you say the linchpin was that got pulled that made that kind of departure exodus from the Calvinistic camp over to where you're at now? Well, there there were several things. I, I know that the 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 thing that started me on my journey, I guess, was um, I was a debater in high school. Uh, in college, um, and you always had to take the the positive and the negative side of every debate. You had to, you had to be able to debate both sides, and immediately when your coach said switch, you'd have to be able to switch, and you'd have to convincingly argue for the opposite side you were just arguing for. And that's a skill set that's really hard to do objectively. Um, but when I was a Calvinist, I, I had only really understood Calvinism and kind of the the Calvinistic bubble that I was in. I, I'd only really learned about Arminianism based upon what Calvin's Calvinists had taught me. And so I had in my mindset that our, all Arminians were kind of these foresight faith that people looked through the quarter, you know, God looked through the quarters of time to foresee who would believe. And those are the ones he preselected. And like Matt Chandler, who I went to college with and an old friend of mine, you know, he uses the analogy of God gets into a DeLorean, a time travel machine and travels into the future and sees who's going to believe in him. And those are the ones he elects and the caricature of Calvinism uh, that Calvinists often bring towards Arminians. And that's kind of the only thing I knew of Arminianism is what Calvinist had taught me. And so Calvinism seemed much more uh, likable and plausible than anything I knew about Arminianism. And I was actually reading A.W. Tozer, who I thought was a Calvinist at the time, because Piper quoted from him quite regularly, and he was in-depth, and he was smart. And of course, when you're a Calvinist, you think all in-depth, smart, exegetical preachers are Calvinists. You just assume that they must be. And so I just assumed A.W. Tozer was a Calvinist. And so when something he said in one of the books that I I think it was uh, The Holiness of God, I believe, something of that nature, and um, it it just didn't fit my Calvinistic paradigm. And I was like, wow. Tozer's a Calvinist, isn't he? This is, this is weird. And it kind of set me on a journey to find out that Tozer, and later I found out C.S. Lewis wasn't a Calvinist. And I'm like, how can smart people who know the Bible not be a Calvinist? What's wrong with these people? And I, I just kind of started a journey just in, in investigating a little bit more the, the actual scholars from the other side to learn what they teach. Uh, and one thing led to another, which led to another, which led to another. It was a three-year kind of a journey, really that really begin to bring questions to my mind about how does, how do Calvinists answer this? And I, there was oftentimes where I'd say, well, I don't know as a, you know, amateur Calvinist how to answer this, but I'm sure MacArthur would know how to answer it, or I'm sure Sproul would know how to answer it. And so I would just kind of push those things aside thinking, yeah, these are problems, but they're probably not problems for the real Calvinist out there. And I would just kind of keep pushing them aside until eventually my curiosity, my desire to learn, being a theology geek, I just kept exploring those questions and kind of kept picking at them to kind of figure out what's behind that. And the more I explored, the more I realized, I think the misinterpretations with all due respect of, of Calvinists 
uh, with regard to Romans 9, especially with regard to the concept of judicial hardening, uh, uh, the concept of, of God, uh, Jesus using parabolic language to prevent people during his day to understand his identity and the purpose of that. Once I began to understand these concepts and ideas, Calvinism really lost its foothold for me. Uh, and I, I, the necessity of holding on to what was very difficult pill to swallow, even Calvinists admit it's a very difficult pill to swallow, double predestination, the concept of reprobation. Um, that pill kind of was choked back up pretty quickly once I began to understand from another perspective. Uh, so that, that's my journey. Eric, I can't remember. You, I don't think, Eric, you were ever a Calvinist, were you? You never affirmed Calvinism. No. Thank God. Yeah, no, but I, I know you have a story. Touche. Sure. <laughs> uh, yeah, very, very well said. Uh, what, what, tell, tell them, I know you have a story, though, your first encounter with Calvinism and what kind of directed you away from it, though. I, I think that would be interesting for them to hear as well. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, um, so uh, pr- prior to, to really studying any deep uh, theology, I have more of a philosophical background and, and a story to how I came into apologetics. But basically, um, I began to study a lot of metaphysics because that's what kind of led me into apologetics via the soul. Uh, and, and with that came questions about what what is metaphysically, what is a person? Uh, what does it mean to have certain capacities? What is a soul? And then, of course, because it's a free will and consciousness. And as I began to learn the different metaphysical positions, like let's say with free will, uh, you have libertarian free will, compatibilism, hard determinism. Um, I began to look at these things and just kind of set my metaphysical ducks in order to what I found was most logically consistent, learn what a nature was, you know, what is a person, what is a nature. And, and then as I began to learn these things, uh, I also saw that there were, uh, you know, the, the book that I was reading was Philosophical Foundations for a Christian Worldview. And it began to list uh, people who would hold these views or, 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 or groups that would hold these views, not just atheists, but even Christians. And it listed Calvinists. And honestly, when I first read this, I thought this must be some outdated group that used to exist a long time ago that, you know, these guys probably aren't around anymore. Uh, you know, so I just kept reading and then I began to meet Calvinist. And that was uh, a, an interesting experience to me because I'm like, wait a minute, do, do you know what you believe when it comes to free will? And, and, and what I began, and I'm just telling you like, like it is how I experienced it, you know, when they, they would begin to describe, well, you know, within your nature. And then I'm like, well, how are you using that word nature? Because that doesn't sound like the way it's used metaphysically. And, and oh, you must be talking about an influence. And as I began to hear the discussions and talk with him, in my opinion, I began to notice there was a lot of uh, um, misunderstandings metaphysically or not understanding the implications of what I would argue are any form of determinism. And, and so, so it's always, it's, so I came into it kind of through the back door and it was bizarre to me at first. Um, now, the more I learned about Calvinism and met them and, and looked at the verses, I'm like, yeah, I, I see what you're getting at. Uh, but also I had already started to study Molinism and I thought, well, you know, that that's, in my opinion, a far better approach when it comes to uh, uh, sovereignty, however you want to define that, uh, God's provision, uh, foreknowledge and human freedom. And I just never saw any um, reason biblically or philosophically to be in favor of Calvinism, Calvinism. If anything, I saw a lot of red flags, both biblically and philosophically. The reason, yeah, and the reason I push I pushed Eric to share that is just to hopefully to recognize for your guests uh, that Eric and I come come at this from a pretty different approach. We we mm-hmm. both recognize this from the diverse day we met. Uh, he is much more philosophically minded. Yes, I'm yes. much more theologically minded. Uh, but I think that's one of the things that we work together really well is that 
uh, he, he has a different way of looking at things or a different background for the way he approaches certain questions that come, come to bear. But, uh, but I think both can be beneficial and helpful in these discussions. Yeah, so for Eric's point, you know, I actually was just recently listening to the, the back and forth he was having with Cy regarding, you know, you know, <laughs> going, uh, the, uh, it's the word I'm looking for here. Help me out, Dan. Throw me a lifeline. Methodology. The apologetic, apologetic methodology. Yeah, pre-sub. There are pre-sub yeah, pre versions. Yeah. Yep. There we go. So, and hearing that, you know, you were definitely coming from a more logical and philosophical position and trying to put in reasoning with all of it versus, you know, size position with the pre-sub. And honestly, I found value in both sides of what you were saying. You know, I would say I'm more on the pre-sub side, but I do find value in appealing to logic as well. So, but, you know, but okay, that was, as you said, you know, Leighton, you're more theological side and Eric's more on the philosophical side. Now for you, Leighton, you talked about mischaracterizations going on, you know, rampant on both sides. And that was something that I appreciated years ago. My wife got me a set of books, you know, two companion books. One is why I'm not a Calvinist and the other is why I'm not an Arminian. And I found those were helpful because it wasn't just why I am what I am. And then a you know, bunch of straw man arguments for the other side, but they were simply representing why they are not the other side. And both of those books I felt were very fair in representing the opposition, so to speak, without painting anybody into, you know, a harmful negative light, I would say. They did a, a really good job with that. Yeah, I agree. I've, I've read those books as well, and they do, they are fair with one another. And, and I understand the accusation of misrepresentation, the straw man accusation, uh, and, and it is difficult not to straw man uh, an opponent. Uh, it, it's difficult to be fair with somebody you're trying to, especially if you're trying to debate them. Uh, and it's also difficult because the other group is not monolithic. Uh, I, I do get the accusation of misrepresentation uh, quite regularly from my Calvinistic friends. And I have to point out to them, well, maybe I'm addressing a different form of Calvinist than you are. Mm -hmm. um, and, and then I'll give them a quote or two from the Calvinist that I was addressing and, and explain to them this this is the true form of Calvinism that I was addressing in that particular broadcast. If, if you don't adhere to that, then great. Then we, maybe we're in more agreement than, than you are with that particular Calvinist, and that's, that's fine. Um, and I'm not striving to misrepresent Calvinist. I, 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 I think if you held up my podcast up to any other Calvinistic, popular Calvinistic podcast, I go m to much greater lengths to represent my opponents and allow them to represent themselves far more so than you hear typically Calvinistic podcast with regard to my beliefs or Armenians beliefs for that matter, uh, especially with the big name guys, go listen to MacArthur's representation of Armenians and tell me that's not the most gross misrepresentation of Armenianism you've ever heard in your life. Um, go listen to John Piper's misrepresentation er earlier. He's gotten better by the way, but earlier before he engaged with Roger Olson, he was grossly misrepresentative of Armenian theology. Um, th this, is, this is very typical in my estimation and in my experience among the big name, the big dogs of, uh, of Calvinism in, in our world today. And I'm not accusing you two guys of that. I don't know, but I, I, I've just, I have been inundated, inundated with examples of big name Calvinists who have misrepresented Arminianism, true Arminianism, the whole Armenian camp in, in very, very poor light uh, over the years. Uh, and I, and I've strived not to do the same thing to Calvinists through my, my experience and my, my podcast. 
Well, we appreciate I, that, I Dr. Flowers. And I, and I think you're right about that. I think on the Calvinistic side, there tends to be, um, you know, I don't know if you heard the term cage stage Calvinists who tend to kind of, I know they get passionate about their views and then they tend to go out and try to plow everyone over who doesn't believe in what they believe. And I think it's easy to take shots at the other side if you are making straw men and that those are easy points. Um, but, you know, as Christians, we're called to be truthful. We're called to speak, uh, not bear false witness about other people. Um, and so, you know, we hope we can do that in our discussion today. And we do appreciate that uh, you're trying to do that with the Calvinistic side as well. Um, and and just important. to be fair, there there are like men like Chris Date, uh, Eli Ayala, and other Calvinist friends of mine who who go to just as much lengths as I do to represent me correctly. And so there there are they're just not big name guys. Obviously, right. it's like I'm not that big of a name of a guy either. Uh, but the, there are guys that are friends that do that. Um, I'm, but when I was talking about Calvinist, remember I'm I'm talking the MacArthur kind of names out there. Uh, they are not doing a good job representing uh, non-Calvinists, in my estimation. I think that might kind of depend as well. Kind of like you said, the Calvinist side might, or rather, I'm sorry, the, uh, you said, for instance, you, that you said a Calvinist might kind of take issue, say it's misrepresenting, and you'd be, well, maybe it's not your flavor. Yeah, I think that could very well be happening the other direction as well. And well, I I, well, I'll just say, I could play that clip from MacArthur, and there's not an Armenian in the world, including Jacobs Arminius, who would agree with almost anything he said <laughs> representing Arminianism. Just, just, to, just have to say that. But okay, so for him, I, I, I would, yeah, I've never heard him on that, so I wouldn't be able to yeah, say that. But it's I've, it's bad. It's really I've bad. Had, you know, I once was you know a part of a rather Southern Baptist church, and I think I was probably the only Calvinist in the entire church. And you know, I had talked to my pastor quite often about things, and I decided just while talking, I went through each of the five points just casually not in any form or tulip or anything like that just kind of the implications of them and what they mean and he was like oh yeah i agree with that you know and then he pretty much agreed with every last thing in there got a little shaky when i was talking about limited atonement and we're you know how we're wording it but ultimately came so i think we might be agree on that one and then i came i was like so what you just said is you agree with and i ran through the points he's like no 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 you know so <laughs> That reminds me of a discussion John Piper had with Rick Warren. Uh, I mean, many of you know both of those names, both big yep. names. But when Rick Warren, he 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 a lot he like probably your pastor and many pastors out there, are desire for cordiality, desire for unity, desire to get along, and and sometimes can become what I would call chameleon theologians meaning that whoever they're with and whoever they're talking to, they're going to come across as being in agreement with them, especially if the person they're talking to is very well-versed and intelligent like John Piper is with regard to his particular brand of theology. And so it's interesting when you listen to John Piper and, and uh, can kind of confront Rick Warren with regard to his soteriology, it's like Rick Warren just becomes a Calvinist right before your eyes. Uh, when I know full well, based upon many of his other messages and sermons and writings, he does not align with the major tenets of Calvinistic doctrine. Uh, and you'll see that quite regularly among those of our camp. And that, that's to our shame. I, I, I think people from our side of the aisle should be clear and understand what they believe and why they believe it and not become chameleon theologians that just adapt to whoever they're with and become whatever they're with in order to get along, because that, that confuses the, uh, the, the people in the pews that confuses people who are reading their materials. And I think it brings uh, further division in the church, not clarity. Uh, I, I have no problem disagreeing with my Calvinistic friends, as long as you can be respectful and 
loving while you disagree with them. Uh, and and uh, I, but I think that requires clarity, it's just like in a marriage. Uh, if you're not clear about your points of disagreement, your your misunderstandings, it's just going to cause further division and trouble down the road. And so I think we have to have clarity in these 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 discussions. Yeah, agreed. And that kind of goes back to where I was saying in the beginning. You know, we have differences. We don't need to hide from that. You know, we should be discussing these and being real down to earth. So, you know, with that, you know, I think we can uh, we should probably jump into some of the points there. The first point, yep. you know, being again God's decree and the reform perspective of God's decree. I know we are going to have, you know, differing approaches in how God has decreed, what he has decreed, who he has decreed, while maybe agreeing on a lot of it, but having a differ, differing approach in how it was implemented and to whom it was implemented. Now, Dan, you want to kick us off on some of that, really the overview of our reform perspective and the particular Baptist perspective on that? Yeah, so um, we come from like Rav said, the particular Baptist, so we're Reformed Baptists, so we subscribe to the uh, 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, um, which teaches that everything that has come to pass, good, bad, and otherwise, are and it or has been decreed by God from eternity. It's part of his eternal decree. And then we also have a doctrine of divine providence, which teaches that God works out his decree in time um, to his ends and for his glory. So at a very high level, we um, gather our, uh, our doctrine from that. Obviously, the, the confession is not our ultimate standard. Uh, we believe scripture is the standard and the confessions are uh, subservient to that as a helpful guide in terms of what those uh, biblical teachings are. Um, but in a nutshell, that's really what we believe as uh, Reformed Baptists with relating to God's decree. Um, now, I guess a question I have um, kind of more... I guess, metaphysical and relating to the doctrine of God. And this is both for you, uh, Eric, Leighton and Eric, um, with regards to divine omniscience. I know that both of you have touched, I think, on this uh, to some extent about how God can uh, know all things, yet um, deal with the libertarian free choices of men. Um, my question is, how is that uh, reconciled in your worldview? If God can uh, make uh, if God knows all things that will happen, how can uh, the libertarian free choices of men be actually known by him as it relates uh, to the absence of a decree? Well, I, I think first it might be beneficial to define what you mean by decree. Um, yeah, so we're talking God's purpose, God's plan, what he, all things that have come to pass or that will come to pass. So it sounds like you're using the word decree in the same way you might use the word determined or predetermined. Yes. So God determined purpose yep, plan. Predetermined. Yes, okay. Yep. And so to say that God predetermined whatsoever comes to pass means that He predetermined even men's lust, men's pride. Yes. We would rape, murder, Holocaust, everything. He predetermined it. Yes. And you don't mean that He foresaw it as future and permitted it, but right. that He actually predestined it or predetermined that it would happen. In other words, He's the one who decided it would happen. Yes, that is correct. Okay. Yes. But you also say in your confessions, he's not the author of it. That is correct. Yep. So can you give me an example of what it would look like for him to author it as distinct from him decreeing it? Because that, that's where I've gotten confused because to, to author something sounds very similar to predetermining it. And, and if you say he predetermines it, 
but he doesn't author it. Can you give me an example of something that he does author, or maybe that like he authors obviously the scriptures. He he wrote the scriptures. Right. Um, he sovereignly brought them to pass unchangeably. But he also sovereignly and unchangeably brought to pass lust and pride and all these sinful things, according to your statements. And so what is the difference between predestining something, decreeing it in the Calvinistic sense of the word, and authoring it? Yeah. Um, so is that is that a clarification question that's leading yeah, to the one I, I mean, asked yeah. you? Okay. I mean, I can, I, we, we can skip it and come back to it if you'd like, and I can answer the question with regard to omniscience or even pun it to Eric if he wants to get into the metaphysics of God's knowledge, um, because he and I take a little different approach on that. Um, I, I basically take a more Boethian model, which is from Boethius and from the fifth century, the Constellation of Philosophy, which is promoted by C.S. Lewis and other pretty well-known theologians over the years, which is not really a holistic answer to the question. It's it's more of an appeal to the eternal nature of the eternal now view of God, which is that God knows all things because he is at all places at all times, not because he determines everything. And so God is in the eternal now in that sense. And that is beyond full comprehension. It's not really an answer to the question. It's an explanation of how God can know something without being the determiner of it. I think Molinism gives a lot more detail to that. Um, it's not necessarily in opposition to what I just said. I think Molinism just goes further to explain what is known as middle knowledge uh, and how that might work with regard to the libertarian freedom uh, of man. And for those that may not be aware, when we talk about libertarian freedom, it's in uh, contrast with compatibilistic freedom. Uh, from the Calvinistic side. So we're both adhering to a form of freedom of man or human responsibility. Right. The question is whether it's libertarian or compatibilistic. So when people go out there and say, oh, we don't believe in that free will stuff, they're not, I think, understanding the the categories that we're speaking in, or they'll say things, well, oh no, we're in bondage to sin. Well, okay, we both Arminians, provisionist Calvin, all of us believe that sinners are in bondage to sin. That's not the, that's not the point up for debate. What we're talking about is the capacity of a human being uh, to to respond positively to God's appeals to be reconciled from that bondage. And so does one have the capacity in his fallen condition to recognize he's fallen, to confess his fallenness, and to trust in the one offering a way of escape? The Calvinist says, no, not unless he was unilaterally picked before he was born and given an effectual work of grace. Uh, the provisionist says, no, everyone can because of the grace brought by the gospel itself and the provision of the cross. Um, and so the, the answer to the question with regard to God's knowledge, on my perspective, is that it's an eternal attribute. It's an infinite attribute and unknowable and un, uh, uh, in, uh, incomprehensible to man uh, in the same way that we might say, I, I, I believe that God created something from nothing. I don't know how he created something from nothing in the same way. I know God knows the future free, libertarianly free choices of creatures. But I don't know how he knows the future free libertarian choices of creatures. Um, and I don't, sus- I, I don't pretend to try to be able to explain that, except to just to say it's, it's an infinite attribute of his character, that he can know things that people will freely choose to do without being the one who determines what they do. Um, and, and I think Molinism takes all of what I just said as true, but then goes further to explain how that can work. With, with regard to contingencies and middle knowledge. And that's where Eric is much more of an expert than I am. And I would, you know, punt to him to be able to explain that more uh, completely if you want to go down that, that 
that road. Yeah, I think it would be good to discuss it. I, I think that these um, discussions about libertarian free choices of men and God's decree have an impact on the doctrine of God. Um, so I think it'd be can good I, can to I talk add some about stuff to that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Go ahead. Eric. Yeah. So, yeah. so, uh, um, yeah. And for, for the most part, you know, Blake and I are on the same page. And like I said, there may be some uh, slight uh, differences uh, it would have, but, but uh, uh, the, the way I was thinking of answering the question. So uh, as far as I can tell, there are two questions. One was how do you reconcile foreknowledge and human freedom? And the second question was how can God know free choices? To me, these are kind of non sequiturs. Uh, in other words, before even answering the question, I would question the question because to ask, to ask how do you reconcile foreknowledge and human freedom is like asking, it's like saying grass is green and the sky is blue. How do you reconcile that? And my question would be, what is there to reconcile? Um, there's no, a reconciliation only comes up when there's contradictions or dilemmas or perhaps even face value contradictions with something. I don't even think it was a face value contradiction with saying, I will freely do X and God knows X. There is no at all, not even at face value, any logical inconsistency or contradiction. So to me, there's nothing to reconcile. And we would have, from there, we would have to go into what are the implications behind the question that assume a reconciliation need to be made in the first place. So if anything, it's more of a pushback on the question. And I'd say kind of the same for the second one, even though Leighton kind of already touched on it, is uh, how can God know free choices? Well, to me, that's like asking, how is God omnipotent? It, it, it assumes there is a means by which God attains this attribute. But if a necessary attribute is that God is necessarily omniscient, which is that he knows all true things and believes in all false things, then to ask how can God know assumes there is a way by which it is mediated and he gains this knowledge. But, it, uh, but apply that to a different attribute like omnipotence, being all-powerful. Uh, it wouldn't make sense to say, how does God become all-powerful? How many sets does he do? How many grams of protein a day does he take? What kind of creatine is he using? It, it assumes there is a way in which he is coming to gain this attribute. But if it's a necessary attribute, then he has these things essentially as part of his nature. So if God is omniscient necessarily, then it, it, it becomes a category fallacy to ask, how does God know whether it's human free choices or anything you can put into the mix? Well, if he's omniscient necessarily, then the question of how he comes to know becomes a category fallacy. So I have a co comment on that. I would say that the omniscience and the omnipotence and the examples in there really wouldn't follow each other either. In the sense, in the omnipotence, we're not asking, well, really in neither are we asking how did God become? We simply would assert God is. And in the God is omnipotent, all-powerful, it wouldn't be how is God all-powerful if man has some kind of power and can do reps, it would be that man can do what man can do. God is all powerful and man will never overcome God's power. Man's power will never be able to thwart his power, or even contradict his power. When it comes to the omniscient side, that it ties in differently because now God simply is all knowing. But now you have man who is performing some kind it's not about a different a matter of well god is powerful man is powerful god knows and men know this now turns into god how does god know if men are freely choosing and that would mean it would lead either god is all-knowing and just simply is and has not gained anything and man will only ever act in accordance with that or man is free to do anything if it would happen 20 times over be free to choose any which way he wanted to go but then God really wouldn't 
know. So if God said, if we start with God is all knowing and, and that's eternal, then anything that happens and follows from that would have to be in accordance with the knowledge. So we have to figure out what came first. But well, well, I, I would disagree. And this is where I go back to what I said about the first question in order to understand better the first question, the way you're asking it, you would have to unpeel the onion layers and reveal the assumptions you're making behind the reason that you're asking for reconciliation, which is kind of what you did. Uh, I, I think they are the same thing because if we say God is omniscient, the property of being all knowing is not directly or inherently tied to whether or not I have the capacity to be a first mover with respect to my will or actions. So I think there's a conflation of categories there. And then, and then anything after that, so I would, I would just re be repeating myself. So I, I guess suffice it to say that I would disagree and just kind of fall back on the explanation I gave. Yeah, understandable. Okay. So I guess where we're coming from, um, and Eric, it sounds like we're kind of starting on the same playing field as it relates to, at least in this respect, in the doctrine of God, that God, it's a necessary attribute that he has. It's not something that is gained, and, and that is absolutely right. Um, I guess where we're coming from is we're saying if man has the ability from a libertarian free will perspective um, to make choices that are outside of God's control that he did not decree, um, how well, can God- I didn't God say that. Did not say what? That God, that man can make choices which are outside of God's decree. Um, but don't you believe that God does not have a decree, at least in the sense that we believe it? That God did not, that God did not decree th things that come to pass, at least in terms of yeah, uh, those it, things that are sinful. And just to, just to interject, that's why I, I'd ask that question about the definition, because even earlier in my, I, I've, I've, I've stopped doing this, but earlier in even as a, provisionist and non-Calvinist traditional Southern Baptist, um, I use the terms uh, permissive decree versus decreative decree or sovereign decree uh, and drawing a distinction as we see in, in many uh, articles online, even CARM with Matt Slick even gives the definition of the permissive decree of God is that which he does not actively cause or control, but that which he permits to happen he allows yeah to happen. we would we would reject that we don't yeah. believe in a right and so and that's, yeah, and that's in an active decree. so even even arminians many of uh, arminian theologians that i'm aware of will talk about a de permissive decree of god and they're talking about that which god permits to take place that and that's what free will is all about i mean what are you permitting if not the the free choices and actions of creatures and so the permissive degree decree um, oftentimes confuses this matter. It's one of the reasons I don't usually use that term anymore because I don't find the Bible using the term decree in that way. And so to, to be more clear, I just use the word permission. You know, God is is not the cause of pride. God is the cause of creatures who can have pride. He is the, he is the creator of the creature, but he is not the creator or the cause of that creature's, that free creature's uh, desires, choices, and actions. Um, and that that's what we're trying to point out, I think, in, in these distinctions that we're drawing. And I can't speak for Eric with regard to necessarily what he's meaning by decree or not. But I, I think behind the scenes, we could both and all say that God decrees if you're including within that a permissive decree. But that's why I got that definition earlier. When you said decree, you said that means predetermination or predestination. Yes. And so maybe instead of using the word decree, if we just use the word predestined, uh, you know, uh, determined beforehand, something of that nature, then that might be more clear uh, for the audience. Sure, that's fine. That's yeah, fine. That works. We can do that. Yep. Uh, you know, when we say decree, we'd use it in the sense of, you know, it, th this will be done. 
Yeah, you know, think of it like a king, you know, who puts forth his decree, and that is the bottom line. There is no deviation from it. This is his decree. Now, even then, it goes not even a one-for-one -one analogy because people are free to defy the tyrant, defy the king, whereas God is in control of all things in that sense. So we can use determinant, determined, predetermined, you know, if it would be beneficial to the discussion, where, you know, you take gave the term compatibilism earlier, and that really is where our reform position comes from. You said in your position, there's some things you can't pretend to say, we know exactly how it works, you know, this is that, but that there is an explanation at least to go with. And we would feel compatibilism offers that same thing that God is actively, has actively decreed, not is, has from eternity past, actively decreed every you know and determined every last facet of existence there is not one little thing that was outside of that determining will and that is how all things are held together in him because he has determined all things that will pass now i can understand from a logical thought well if somebody has decreed something if i decreed that my child will go to bed at eight o'clock at night and i go in there and i stand over them and they are in their bed eight o'clock well now my child hasn't done anything, even if he says, well, okay, okay, dad, and he goes in, I can get it. Logically thinking, one might come to the conclusion, well, that was ultimately me as his parent that made him go to bed. Now I'm the author of him being in bed at eight o'clock. However, when we talk about it from God, he's purposefully decreed and determined everything to come to pass, but man still has moral free agency. So man is still choosing things in accordance with our nature, which maybe we can go into more, Eric, I know you mentioned it earlier, you know, but in our nature, the nature is what we are composed of either fallen or regenerate, you know, either in the world of the world and therefore of the, our father, the devil, or of God after being regenerated by the spirit. So we act in accordance with that nature. And can, can I uh, add, add something to just kind of, uh, is that all right? If I have um, someone here? Yeah, just give me one second just to wrap this thought, sure, I'm, sure. I'm, yep. and then we'll have you, you can dive in. So in that nature and acting in accordance with the nature, we can go into whether that is fully fallen, unable to do good, or just partially bruised and damaged. But for the purpose of this, that we act in accordance with it. And therefore, we have our desires, and we act in accordance with our desires. Those desires are either for the world or desires are of God. And because we are freely, we're not robots just doing what God has said you will do. He's not you know, dragging us, kicking and screaming, but we willingly do these things. But we have, or God has determined that it will take place, and he orchestrated every facet of existence to where that would happen. Not merely saying, well, he, if I wanted to do that, hopefully it'll work out in time. <clears throat> yeah, so uh, one thing I wanted to add, uh, uh, maybe even go a little bit step further than, than what Leighton was saying, but in agreement with what Leighton was saying, because, uh, of course, definitions are important. There's a shirt out there that says world's greatest philosopher, and it says depending on what you mean by world, what you mean by greatest, and what you mean by philosopher. Um, but uh, uh, so decree, we've established predestined, and then you're using determined, but I would go a step further and say to even more clarify on the Calvinist position, it seems more appropriate to say causal determination, not just determine, which is the reason I wanted to jump in was just to add that distinction, which I think would clarify if I were to tell my son to, or daughter to go to bed, I'm determining that, but there's a difference between saying determine and causally determine. When we're talking about determinism in philosophical sense, we're talking about a causal determination. 
But if I say I'm going to determine to lose weight, then obviously that's a different type of usage. So in, in this context, at least, it would seem appropriate to say on the Calvinist perspective, we're talking causal determination. So I could say that God has determined things, but I'm not talking causal determination. So for the sake of this conversation, um, when I hear determine, I'll think causal determination, which I would reject that God has causally determined all things come to pass, even if I'm okay with saying uh, God has determined all things that come to pass in the sense like you use with your daughter, but I would reject the cause of determination. And we would say that if it's not causally determined, then it's really nothing more than wishful thinking or hoping, you know, much like the weight loss. So I've determined to lose weight, but then if I don't cause any of that to happen, I may not lose weight or maybe just my stress, I'll wind up losing a little bit, but there's nothing certain about any kind of determination without a cause behind it. Well, I, th th that, that's where we'd get in, into the nitty gritty there, which, which I don't mind getting into. And, and I don't know if we'll let you want to say something, but uh, it, it seems as, as if you're saying if God cannot cause you to determine all things, then I guess he can't be in control. But I don't see how that's the case, especially if within his control, he has allowed human freedom, knowing the outcomes. And then this is where I would go to Molinism and say, well, if God knows any and every single possibility and has decreed a world in which to create and still get his will accomplished, then as Molina put it, he pretty much said, which God is more sovereign, a God that can accomplish his will by causing the actions of free creatures or a God who could accomplish his will through the actions of free creatures. And I would appeal to the latter. But yeah. isn't, um, but isn't that in terms of Molinism, isn't that a form of causal determinism? Because if man is put in a situation where he is going to choose a certain outcome, even though it's albeit freely, um, it isn't that's still a causal determined result because God knows us according to your worldview. God is knowing what is going to happen and having um, this middle knowledge of what is going to happen. Um, it, doesn't that create an issue from a libertarian perspective and therefore God's knowledge of what will happen? Uh, no, because then we would have to define what we mean by free will. And, and I would define free will as um, uh, sufficient or necessary as being the first mover of your will or action. So in other words, I can set up a scenario when I propose to my wife, um, I, I pick what dress she would wear, what shoes she would wear, where we would eat, what time we were leaving. Uh, we had this uh, dinner uh, boat date that I had set up. I, I causally determined and predestined which song would come to pass. And I knew that she would say yes. And without getting to the details, one reason I knew is because we already had the date planned, the venue, she already had her wedding dress all before I ever proposed. Um, so I knew she was going to say yes. And I knew what it would take for her to say yes. And I even set up the circumstances for her to say yes. But I also knew what it would have taken for her to say no. I could have, you know, cursed at her, spit on her face, pushed her overboard off the boat and then say, by the way, would you marry me? And then, of course, she would say no. Um, so just because I've set up a circumstance in which I know how someone would respond doesn't in any way take away the person's libertarian free will as the first mover of their choice that they make. So with the idea of, you mentioned Molinism, I've always viewed the, the idea of, you know, God of Molinism, you know, as almost like Men in Black 3, I think it was, with Griffin, as that space alien that knows all possibilities of all things, but not one of them is set. And, you know, but I've always found that to be kind of a weak and really unknowing view of God, because even Griffin didn't know all things he just knew all potential things or bring it forth even to a more recent doctor strange with the time stone sees all these possibilities but he doesn't even really know which one it is but it's only this one that can defeat thanos you know and i just can't see god as knowing all these possibilities but if he's decreed down to satan being defeated 
you know, and every last thing. And we have very specific examples in scripture of down to the people themselves and the decrees. And it couldn't act outside of that. There was only one way it could occur, not a multitude of ways. And then it just happened to play out. If we see even one instance of that in scripture, then that means it opens up at least to anybody who is not on board with that idea, the very distinct possibility that if one instance is like that, they could all be like that. We would say they absolutely are all like that because it's not just possibilities where God hopes for the best and knows all that could happen or knows the hearts of man, but actual, this is how it shall be. Well, well, if we're going to stick to canon, and by canon I mean the Marvel canon, it was in the movie, <laughs> Doctor Strange does say there's only one out of X million possibilities. There's only one that we win, and he does work in such a way to bring about that one circumstance out of the millions of other possibilities that they, in fact, do win. Uh, and, and you mentioned the Men in Black character saying, you know, you can't see God like that. I can't either because, you know, God's more than that character. Of course, not only it's does a he rough knows, analogy. <laughs> right, sure. And, and what well, well, the, the difference is important because not only does God know every possibility, he also knows uh, uh, which one he's going to actualize. So from the beginning, God's in control, not only... In other words, it's not just that has God has foreknowledge. And here's, if I can say this respectfully, a critique I would even have against Calvinism with respect to Molinism and, and the, uh, the non-Molinistic Calvinist view is that on Molinism, God actually is more omniscient than on the Calvinist view because on Molinism, God not only knows what will happen, but also knows what could have happened, where on the Calvinist view, you don't have that because you wouldn't necessarily, if you're going to deny God's knowledge of free creatures, and you don't necessarily have that middle knowledge. The only time counterfactual knowledge comes into play is after the decree, not prior to it. So on the Molinistic conception of God, God has this middle knowledge and more items of knowledge than the Calvinist conception of God would, given what I've laid out. So we would would say that that God does know everything that could happen, um, given that he has infinite knowledge. We just, he actualized a certain decree that he wanted to bring about. Um, And I, I think that is an issue for Molinism is that there's this middle knowledge that God somehow has gotten from somewhere outside of himself before he decrees and brings about um, his. What do you mean uh, by what could have happened? Um, So any possibilities in any situation. But if God decrees all that, then it's not what could have happened. It's what he could have caused to happen. Not necessarily what could have happened. Not could have happened in, in actualization, but what could have happened in terms of what he could have decreed to happen. So he knows of all the possibilities that he could have decreed to come to pass, but what will come to pass is what he actually decreed. That's what we would say. And that's where we find a deficiency in the view of libertarian free will, because um, at least from the Molinistic perspective, how could, if, if man is truly free, at least in the sense that he's not coerced, he's not uh, determined of what he's going to choose, um, then God really hasn't uh, go, or isn't going to know the end result because that person still could have chosen otherwise than what God had put him in the situation to do. Well, could God not know Eric will do X and then put a comma? And God also knows that Eric could have done Y? Uh, he only knows what he might do, not what he will do. Why not? Um, in well, any given situation. He knows what he, what he will do. But, isn't the, but aren't you falling into a form of determinism at that point? Because God is determining, at least by putting you in that situation, what will happen, and therefore we'll know, um, assuming that person actually chooses uh, what God is trying to bring about. So, so here's how I would write it down if I were to write in a sentence. God knows Eric will freely do X, 
comma, and God knows that Eric could have freely done Y. But Where's if you could never, there? if you never actually, so using that, God but knows if he never that actually Eric did it, X, right? But you know, and comma, and God knows Eric could have done Y, but Eric will never do Y, regardless how many times this reality ever replayed. Then, therefore, the only thing is Eric will do X, and nothing else is reality. It's not an alternate universe of possibilities. It's just there now turns into Eric will do X, and Eric will not do Y. It is just Eric will do X, and Eric, and then turns into a Y. Is Eric only going to do X? Is that because Eric is acting in accordance with his nature that will only desire X, and then turns into Y? Is that, or is it God has decreed? everything from eternity past the x would be but in the end with both views x is the only one that would ever occur so there's no actual need or reality of a y well and, and i'm gonna let Leighton jump in whenever he wants here but so this, this is where you're confusing certainty with necessity um i could sure if you play it back in situation i'm fine with saying i'll always do x but that doesn't follow that therefore i would necessarily cause determined to do X no matter what. It just means I will always do X in this given circumstance. And I still could have done Y and both are free choices. So unless you smuggle in what well, must be determinism, there's you'd have to give a reason for why this would be called a determinism because if I do things freely as a first mover, then unless you change the circumstances, and sure, I could say I'll always do X, but if I'm doing it freely and God knows it, none of that adds up to therefore I'm causing determined. So that kind of sounds like, um, in a sense, what we would believe, I mean, we're, we don't abide by Molinism, but at least in that sense where God is not coercing our will, we're not being forced into doing something. Yes, God has decreed it, but there's nothing in nature, there's uh, nothing, God, that's making me go against, um, you know, my actual will. Um, and in that sense, we would say we are free. Um, but I guess where we're getting at with terms of causal determinism, if God sets up a certain situation where he knows someone... Or, or want someone to choose X, um, and he puts them in that situation knowing that they're going to, it, you know, according to your position, based on their free choices, they're going to choose X. Uh, that, I would say, is a form of causal determinism because by putting them in that situation where he set them up, he knows they will choose X. Otherwise, they would not have. Unless you believe that man's will is somehow able to make other choices within that given situation, in which case he may not necessarily choose X. Well, well, then we're going. Well, no, because we're going into modal logic here, uh, and and um, in other words, w without even getting into compatibilism, because that's a whole other story. Because you're saying I'm, you know, in compatibilism, you're still doing what you will, but what you will isn't is something itself that is caused by your strongest desire, which itself is caused, caused determined by God. So it's just pushing back the goalposts, and you're still, in that sense, not. Uh, you don't have. What I would argue is no genuine freedom, but modal logic is basically the, the logic of possibilities and capacities. If I took, right. you know, let's say I, I took an acorn. Let's say this is an acorn. Uh, these are some essential oils someone gave me to try. But let's say this is an acorn, and um, I never plant this acorn in the ground. Does this acorn lose a capacity to become an oak tree if planted in the ground? Well, no. Within the nature of an acorn, it can become an oak tree. And just because I never planted in the ground doesn't follow that, therefore, it somehow loses its capacity to become a tree. In the same sense, if I always do X in a given circumstance, it doesn't follow that, therefore, I have somehow lost the capacity to do Y just because I never do it. Just like an acorn that never gets planted loses its capacity to become a tree. 
but it still kind of becomes a non-issue at that point because you would never actually so if we're tying it back into god if you would never you know then again it's, it's not even a matter of well god knows that you could have done that because if you would never do that then there is no amount of reality in existence or even into a fantasy realm where you would ever do that so it's no longer an actual possibility of knowledge of knowing that or you could have done it's simply you will always want to do this well it would if you change the circumstances but but that that that's the point of molinism and, and possible worlds Leighton, do you want to jump in and say anything well and i, I, I would just insert things like w what you were talking about earlier daniel with regard to god putting people in circumstances knowing they would do something as a form of determinism um and, and to use the old policing analogy that I've used dozens of times before, the police department can know the heart or the character of a particular criminal without being the cause of that criminal's character and put them in such a circumstance, knowing at least well enough as a, a police department would know that if I give this person opportunity to sell drugs, he's going to sell them uh, and therefore put them in the circumstance whether they could sell drugs so as to catch them in a sting operation. In the same way, God can know the heart of Judas without being the determiner of the heart of Judas, because the Bible says that pride and lust are not from the Father, but from the world. And therefore, I would not assume, uh, based on verses like that, that therefore God is the causal determiner of pride and lust of uh, Judas or anybody else, but that God, knowing his pride and lust, that he grew into that character based upon libertarian free choices throughout his life, knowing his character and putting him in circumstances by which he would do what he ended up doing Maybe a form of determinism in your mind, but it's not uh, determinism uh, of all things, and it's certainly not determinism of his character and his choices leading up to that character that he was when he was used by God in the event that that's in question. And so, the fact that God can use already criminal minds like Pharaoh and harden them in their already criminal-like behaviors. To bring about his good purpose or his good plan doesn't prove um, omnideterminism, that God determines every single thing, including the character of Pharaoh up to that point. That flies in the face, I think, of his holiness and his separateness from sin and his character and his goodness as, as a good God. And it ultimately puts blame. Again, I understand you don't say that you blame God for sin, but I would have to blame God for sin if I adopted what you believe is true with regard to God predetermining people's desires to sin. Whoever is causing the desire is the culpable agent. And if you're, if you believe that God is ultimately causing the desire of Judas to sin, then you have put, in my estimation at least, the blame onto God when it should be on Judas as the first cause of his, his desires. Um, and that may be beyond your full comprehension, but many of these, these questions that you guys are discussing, as much as I love the discussion itself as a theology geek myself and a philosopher, uh, you know, that dabbles in philosophy, philosophy, these are extraneous to the scriptures. The scriptures are very clear with regard to man's responsibility and the way that God treats man. And I find nowhere in scripture that even remotely suggests that decree means predetermination. I don't, I don't know one verse that uses the word decree as synonymous with the word predestination. Um, and I certainly don't see any verse in all of Scripture that even suggests that God sovereignly and unchangeably causes all men's lust, desire, and, and choices, uh, and, and, and uh, sinful molestations, and all these horrible, heinous things. In fact, I see just the opposite uh, in, the, in Jeremiah 19.5, for example, when they are burning their children to Melech, and God says, I did not command this, 
nor did I decree it. He even uses the word decree there. And for a Calvinist to come in and say, no, 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 God actually did decree it. Not only decree it, but he decreed it in such a way that he didn't just permit it. He decreed it in such a way as he sovereignly and unchangeably predestined for them to burn their children to Molech, which flies in the face of the clear, in my estimation, the clear revelation of that text. And so I'd, I think you'd have to do all kinds of textual gymnastics throughout the scriptures to put back onto God what the scriptures seem to be separating from God. He doesn't even tempt men to sin um, out of James chapter 1. Uh, what I already mentioned out of 1 John 2.16, that the pride and lust are not from the Father, but from the world. There are way too many texts which separate God from these evil things. And what Calvinism seems to be doing by this claim is putting them back together and saying, no, 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 God sovereignly and unchangeably causally determines pride, lust, molestation, all of these horrible, heinous, evil things. And that's what we're standing up against. That's what we're fighting back against. So I'll say um, uh, with regards... That was a lot there, but I guess going back to Jeremiah nineteen five, um, yes, God does say He does not decree, or He or He did not decree or command. Uh, but what's very interesting, if you look in the next few verses, um, He actually explicitly says, "I will cause them to eat their children. I will cause people to do X, Y, and Z." After stating um, that He has um, not commanded or decreed, um, so we can't see this as separate from his work in providence and working out things, even sinful actions of men uh, to bring about his uh, his purpose. Um, so I uh, think what, that, what, verse, that, what verse are you referring to that says he causes them to eat? Um, this is in the same chapter, Jeremiah 19. Um, if you start in verse six, I can actually pull it up here. And, and again, I, I, don't, I don't hear you answering the question when he says, I do not decree it. And then you say he does decree it. I didn't hear you answer that question. I just heard you kind of defer over to a different verse where we can get to, and I can explain it from my perspective. But I think before we go there, I think you would have to explain how he says, I don't decree it, and, and Calvinists say he does decree it. Yeah, and that's, that's what I'm trying to do, just establishing the context of the verse. Um, let's see, Jeremiah 19. Um, so he lays out in Jeremiah 19.5, um, they have built the high places to Baal to burn their children on the fire's offerings to Baal, something I did not command or mention in order to enter my mind. Um, and then he lays out what is coming. Um, in verse 7, I will make them fall by the sword before their enemies at the hands of those who want to kill them. I will give their carcasses as food to the birds. I will devastate the city uh, and make it an object of horror and scorn. All who pass by will be appalled. I will make them eat the, verse nine, I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and daughters. Okay, so beginning in verse seven, Yeah. and in this place, I will make void the plans of Judah. So does God causally determine the plans of Judah or does he void the plans of Judah? I would he say he, caus what he, he causally caused? determines them um, and he's the okay. active mover so, in this case. Okay, so but what I'm saying is it says he voids their plans. It seems to me their plans would have to be theirs in order for him to void them. Otherwise, he's voiding his own plans. Well, right, and I think yeah, and I think God you're yeah, and I think you're uh, creating a false dichotomy with all due respect, Doctor Flowers. Where it, it's either God's decree or man's agency. Uh, we certainly hold both. Obviously, uh, we would call it concurrence. Um, they have plans, and God does frustrate the plans of men. Uh, my point here is so he's frustrating what he has decreed or determined for them to plan. On your view. Um, no, no, that's not what I'm saying. Oh, God is working out his plan it, uh, here to bring about judgment on the people of Israel. My okay, point is, is that just, he is the active mover behind what is occurring here. 
Um, I'm just, I'm, and, just I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to be too argumentative. I'm just trying yeah, to be yeah. really clear here. Sure. Um, you, you believe God decrees, I mean, determining the predetermined, predestined all things, which means that God predestines their plans. Yes, sir. Okay. Yep. So you just now said that you, you don't believe that he is voiding what he predetermined them to plan, but that's exactly what your claim is saying. You have, God has predetermined what they will plan and he is voiding what he has predetermined for them to plan. Yes. I don't see how that's a problem, though, because God being the first mover, first causer, the creator of the universe, um, and bringing about his plan of fruition. I mean, Isaiah um, chapter 45 is very clear um, about God's decree in terms of bringing about everything that will come to pass, that his plan would stand, his purpose will stand, and he declaring the end from the beginning. Again, I was just trying to, earlier you said no, and then you said yes, and so I was just making sure that everybody understood where where we're coming from. I I don't, I, I think some views don't have to be uh, argued with, I think they just have to be made clear and the audience can judge for themselves. No, that's whether they're fine. Worth yeah, and what I'm saying and I that, think the idea of God voiding his own, what he has predetermined people to plan is just uh, so, intuitively no, I hear rejected. What you're saying. I think what I'm trying to get at is um, that just because God decrees something to happen does not void the agency of the creature. Um, so even though God decrees what will happen with regards to people's choices, him superseding those choices in no way is inconsistent with um, a decree of God or um, in any way concurrence. So back, back to the the, the verse and and I will cause their people to fall by the sword. So is he unilaterally just arbitrarily deciding to cause them to fall or is this a punishment for their burning their children to Malek and these other kinds of sinful choices that they've made freely? Um, It would definitely be a punishment. Um, but right. so still, what, what God sense is the would it make? behind it, and your right. argument so was my, that God is the one. God is trying to distance Himself from the sins of these people, um, but He's, well, he's actually, punishing them for their sins. And, and yes. what I'm trying to push back on is, if He's causally determined their sin, then on what basis would He be just in punishing them for what He has causally determined for them to desire to do? So God causally determines them to want to burn their children to Malek, while yes. saying He does not want them to, and it didn't enter His mind, and He's also from punishing them for. He is punishing them for what he has causally determined for them to want to do. And that, that to me, again, I understand where you're coming from. I, I mean, I used to hold to that. I, I find it to be irrational. Um, but at the same time, I, I'm, I'm just pointing out for the audience, you have to judge for yourselves. Do you believe this verse means when it says, I did not decree it, nor did it enter my mind, actually means God sovereignly and unchangeably decreed it and that he sovereignly and causally brought it to pass, and now he's punishing them for it, what he did. That, that You just have to ask yourself if that's what you believe is true, and, and I'll let the audience decide that for themselves. I, I do have an, oh, kind of a comment about the overall passage here. In the God did not decree in order to enter his mind, we have to remember in here, he's relating to us in that sense. He's speaking to human beings, and this was not his order you know, to human beings and how they should live. He gave his law and how people should live. And that's his righteous standard. Now they don't follow that. And in our position, we would say he decreed the fall and all the intricacies within the fall as well, but he has his righteous standard. And that part is what they need to attain, which will only ever happen in Christ, mind you. So in that sense, he didn't decree it to them in, in the sense of human relation, that that was not the command of how they were to live. And you said that it couldn't possibly be that he decreed them to do those things because that would be wicked and evil, and he wouldn't decree them to, to perform wickedness. And then you said down here where we're saying, and then he said he does decree these things with them, that that's just judgment. But part of that judgment 
is then that they're going to eat the flesh of their children, which is now a wicked act towards another person. So if God is decreeing that they will eat the flesh of their children, I don't see how uh, performing a wicked act towards somebody else just because you're being judged, you know, is different. How that one is okay, that God can decree a wicked act towards other children. But in the other sense, God could never decree it because it would be a wicked act. But we would see it as this is overall, God gave them the commands of how and his standard of how they were to live. And in that sense, never would enter his mind that they should live in such a way. But in the eternal sense, God has decreed all facets of how it shall be. And then, again, going back into the relation to them, and now God is telling them, I have decreed that you will perform all of these now as I judge you for violating my standard. Can, can I uh, take a swing at this? Um, because I still, I still don't think I've heard an answer to what Leighton asked originally, because it does say, so ESV, it says that I did not command or decree, nor did it enter my mind. And when Leighton asked, did he decree it? Uh, uh, Daniel said, well, look at the context later, look at what God does decree. And it seems like, sounds like Daniel was saying, so within context, God did decree it, even though he's telling us in verse five, he did not decree it. And then from what I heard Travis saying is that, well, God didn't command it. Well, right, it says that, but it also says, nor did he decree it, nor did it come to my mind. So I guess the question that I haven't heard answered is, did God decree it or not? And and to, before you guys answer, even even if we look down, it says, and I will cause them to eat their children. Um, so I, I don't even think they would have had this notion of causal determination in their mind. But for example, I can say I'm going to cause you to live in darkness by unplugging, you know, your your or by cutting the wires, the electricity that goes to your house. So I can cause something without being causally determining that you do the thing you cause. I can provoke you to the point to where. You know, I, I cause you to to want to punch me in the face. You know, if I if I knew what bothered you, and of course I never would, and I just said I, I push the right buttons, I can cause you to do something to me, but it doesn't mean I causally determine. So whenever God brings about punishment, sure, it makes sense to say that he causes them to do that. How now how does he do that? Well, it doesn't go into the details, but we often know that whenever uh, uh, especially in these uh, ancient times when it talked about them eating their children, it was a euphemism or usually a metaphor, even if it was still literal, uh, to say there was going to be such starvation that that's what they would have to resort to. So by saying I'm going to call you to eat your children could be literal and also be a metaphor for saying I'm going to bring famine upon your land. So again, not only do I not see any cause of determination in it, I, I see how it can be read into it. I guess after giving that commentary on it, I go back to, did God decree this or not? When in verse five, he says he didn't. Human relation wise, that was never part of his command to the people. Where does it Sovereign, say that? Uh, well, in the full context of what we have on here, your reasoning for why he could not decree it is because he could not could decree something that would be wicked. What, what other no, context do we verse. know God? What other context do we know God except his relationship with us? Well, we know God in his word. He has his relation with us, but right, we also but, know but he has relationship anything that with has himself. Anything, anything that's practical or purposeful is God in relationship with man. I mean, we, we are men, and therefore anything having to do with our relationship with God has to do in the context of God's command and relationship and how he expresses himself and how we're to relate to him. I, I don't know how that answers the problem that you're presenting. And, and, I, and I'll just add to what Eric said with regard to cause. 
Um, you might say back when Obama pulled the troops out of Iraq, you might say, well, the president has caused Iraq to go into shambles. What does that mean? Barack Obama went over there and started cutting off people's heads and burning down buildings. No. Uh, what, what is it talking about? Well, by removing the presence of the United States Army, by removing our power and our sovereign presence over Iraq, what happened? He allowed them to do what they're going to do, eat children, burn buildings, do the things they do. And that's a cause in the sense that he is allowing permissive, the permissive aspect of it. He is causing it permissively. I'm allowing you to do your evil. I'm allowing you to do what you do. And I remove my hand of protection. I remove my restraint so that you will do what you do naturally as uh, sinful, depraved beings that, that in no way even insinuates, especially with regard to the whole counsel of God's word and his holiness and his separation from sin and his desire not even to tempt men to do evil, that he is somehow causally determining even their motivations. That That is such a stretch in the scripture, guys. It's such a, a hermeneutical gymnastic in, in my estimation. And I, I know we disagree with each other. I'm just just in the same way you would push back against me and my views, I'm just in love pushing back and saying, please reconsider where you, what you're saying about uh, God's character here, because you're ultimately, in my estimation, putting back onto God something the scripture seems to be distancing himself from very clearly. So, so I'll, I'll, I'll make a note on that with regards, and I guess this can kind of lead into our discussion about sin's authorship. Yeah. So with regards to um, God being the cause and, and mover of our actions as the primary cause, we would say that because um, we are not all say creatures, meaning we cannot exist apart from God, um, God's will, God's power in this world, because we are not all say creatures as God is. Um, there is a sense where our existence, our movement must be dependent upon God's power. Um, we see this in Acts 17, 28, where Paul is talking to um, philosophers of his day and saying, in him, we live and we move and we have our being. Um, so we see that there is a, uh, a closeness and interwovenness with regards to our existence, our movement, and our being with regards to God's power. Um, and with that comes um, also the, the movement, even good actions, sinful actions. Um, and, and that's where we get this causal nature with regards to human movement. And we also look at it from uh, what is the nature of sin? We don't believe sin to be an entity or something that exists like kind of in a yin and yang kind of situation. You have evil out here on the left and then righteousness and God out here on the right, and they're just duking it out in space somewhere. Uh, we believe that sin is a non-entity. First um, John 3, 4 is very clear. The sin is lawlessness. It's the lack of law. It is the lack of that which is good. Um, and so when God decrees something uh, bad to happen or decrees something bad in the person's will, um, there's nothing being created positively in that person's will. It's simply what is lacking in that person's will. Um, and the same goes when God is actually moving that person to do something. And God cannot create non-being. And since sin is a lack of that which is good, it is non-being. It's a deficiency, a deformity of that which is good. God cannot be properly said to be the author of evil. So that's really where we're coming from. And maybe we could have preambled that earlier. That might have helped clarify some things. Um, going back to your point, Dr. Flowers, but that's really where we're coming from at a very high level with regards to man's movement, existence, and being in God, um, as well as sin's authorship. I'm curious to ask this question. Sure. Just, just, I mean, we, we were kind of talking philosophically before, and this is kind of maybe on that, that same vein, but just this suppositional type question, just suppose. Suppose God wanted to create a creature 
who could make choices that he himself doesn't determine. I'm just supposing. I'm not saying that anything, I'm not saying that you have to uh, agree with me or anything. I'm just saying, just a suppositional, what if God wanted to create somebody, a creature outside of himself, whose choices and desires he did not determine? Do you believe that's even possible? Is, is Does God lack the ability to do that? Is it just not feasible? Is it not possible on, on your view? I would say that would be uh, outside of his nature. Yeah, I would say it's not possible. Um, and I think that if someone has the ability to make actual free libertarian choices outside of a decree of God, then God would therefore have to be gaining knowledge of what that person is doing as they're making those free choices since he didn't determine them Um and nor does so you're, you, he you deny that he has the ability. Them. So he has he de, you deny his omnipotence in the fact that he doesn't have the power to know what no, a free creature. No, 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 no. We deny he can act outside of his nature. Just yeah. the old. Just no, like, I'm, I'm no. not trying to be accusatory. I mean, I'm just no, saying, no, no, that's no, a statement no, no. of fact. If you don't, if you believe it's logically impossible for him to create creatures who he doesn't control deterministically, then what you seem to be saying is that he he doesn't have the power to know. Well, that's future free, okay. libertarianly free choices of creatures. No we're, we're not saying that God, no, we're not saying that God is deficient in his power. We believe that it's outside of his nature to do so. Therefore, he can't. Just like it's outside of God's nature to lie, just because he can't lie doesn't mean he's deficient in his power. So that's, uh, okay, that's so, where we would what, come from with that. But this but this isn't about a character issue. God, God, God cannot lie because his character is just and right. What is it about God if it's not a lacking of power? that makes him incapable of creating a creature he doesn't causally determine. Because he has to gain something after that. If somebody is truly, <clears throat> truly autonomous freedom to be able to do whatever they want, for him to create something like that, or somebody like that, he now has to gain knowledge of what that person might do. Otherwise, they're not actually free. And because we believe in divine simplicity, there are no parts of God, and God is not you know, gaining anything you know, or losing anything. So it seems like what you're, you're, what you're willing to do is to sacrifice his omnipotence for his omniscience. Because he's omniscient, it's impossible for him to create creatures that he doesn't himself well, determine. again, going back to the question I just said, it might have been drowned out. Can God create a rock too heavy to lift is the question that a lot of atheists but will use. I don't, and we would say it's outside of his nature. Look, so real if, quick, let me respond to that. We're not talking about creating a rock too big for him to lift. We're talking about creating a rock that he chooses not to lift. Could, could God create a rock? God. Could God create a rock that He chooses not to move? This turns into: Is God so omnipotent that He creates something that's outside of His omniscience, though? And it, it, again, it would be again, violation. Let me of let nature. me go back to that question: Could God create a rock that He chooses not to move? Yes or no? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Could He create a creature that He chooses not to control? No, we don't believe that. Um, and okay, we on just, what basis? On what basis do you make that claim? We just established that with regards. No, I mean to, biblical. What biblical basis do you make that claim? We just because made that God establishment with, yeah, with the rock well, isn't not, doing anything but sitting there. Yeah, with regard, yeah, with regards to man's nature is not being an osse creature cannot exist or move outside of God, and we've already established that from Acts okay. chapter so seventeen. Not, Okay, so it's Acts yep. 17. I was looking for a scripture verse because all yeah, I heard Acts, was philosophical. Acts 17, yeah, Acts oh, 17, 28 okay. is a specific verse, yep. And Revelation okay. 4, 11 as well. Okay, well, I'm going to pull those up while Eric responds because I think he was chomping at the bit there. Sure. So Acts 17, ahead, what? 17, 28. Okay, I'll look at that and see if that even sure. comes close to suggesting what you just so, said. All right. 
Yeah. So, so here's where, here's where I go back to the uh, the the what I said at the beginning about the metaphysical um, um, flaws. I would say uh, respectfully, uh, um, and goes back to also. So you mentioned if there were free will creatures and God would have to gain something. No, this goes back to the pushback I gave in the initial questions. It's not like God has to lift weights to gain power, nor does He have to do something to gain knowledge of free creatures. If God is omniscient, He's omniscient necessarily. The other conflation I would go to would be that you're saying that you're, you're talking about divine aseity, which for those listening who may not know, is that, that God is the only self-existent thing. Free will is not in any way contradictory, I would even say relevant to divine aseity. Uh, saying I have free will doesn't mean I have self-existence. I still depend on my existence for God every single moment that I exist, but that has nothing to do with whether or not God calls you to determine my will. So you're conflating divine necessity with whether or not I'm a first mover. Uh, Norman Geisler said that God is responsible for the fact of freedom, but human beings are responsible for their acts of freedom. So you can't conflate divine necessity with having a libertarian free will. So on on that view, God wouldn't have to gain anything. And and the reason Leighton was pushing back, I'd say, is that creating a rock so big you can't move, yeah, that's a logical contradiction, but creating free, free creatures is not a logical contradiction, so it's not on the same playing field. You cannot use a logical contradiction to back up something that is not logically contradictory unless you unless you give some argument for that, which I haven't heard. And then you brought up div, uh, uh, divine simplicity, which is a whole other ballpark that I would definitely push back on, but, but I'll leave it there. So, uh, Eric, to your point, do you from a libertarian free will perspective, do you believe that we have the ability to choose otherwise um, in our choices? Um, for the most part, yes. But okay. although I would say that's not a necessary condition for libertarian free will, but it is a sufficient condition. We so believe, you, you do think it is possible? Or, or actually most, does occur with our wills, I should say. Not in most cases, if not all, sure. Okay. So if God... So if God knows what I will choose, how is he going to know what I will choose if I have the ability to choose otherwise? And that's kind of what we're getting at with tying back to... Because he's omniscient. But how can he be omniscient if he doesn't know what I will do? So you're you're asking about the infinite quality. That's like saying, how can he be all powerful? How can he create something from nothing? How does he uh, pre-existent for all eternity? You're asking about an infinite attribute of God. And that's what we're saying that you're, you're, you're assuming, it seems to me, that um, omniscience can't exist. It's, it's almost like you're denying the very thing you're trying to defend. No, we, we absolutely confess this. We just believe that it's inconsistent to hold to complete omniscience in May, God. Maybe, maybe yeah. I can push it back so you can clarify by this question. Okay. How does libertarian freedom inhibit God from knowing all true propositions and not believing any false ones, which is a definition of omniscience? In terms of well, what we're saying is that there's a difference in what knowing might happen and what will actually happen. But that's you, not what I'm asking. Omniscience, God knows all true propositions, does not believe any false propositions. How does correct. me having libertarian free will inhibit that on God? Based on what we said about the might and the no, what will happen versus what might happen. That's what we're distinguishing. Again, this, this sounds like it's going back to certainty versus necessity. If something's certainly known, then it must be necessitated, i.e. determined by the knower which is a modal fallacy, which we've already gone over. I, I, I think we're repeating ourselves. I, I really think we have to go back to the scriptural authority here because, the, because this is really where it all, it all boils down to. And so 
earlier you asserted, it seems, that Acts chapter 17 teaches what exactly? 17 verse what was it? 28? Verse 28 um, says, for in him, referring to God, we live and move and have our being. Okay, and how does that how does that support that we don't have the freedom to make choices? In other words, I, I can assert, as, as Eric rightly said earlier, I can't exist. I can't take my next breath apart from the, the, the pleasure of God. But how does that assert that, therefore, God has not given me the ability to make my own choices as a person who is also choosing to allow to exist? So we would, uh, we would say that the movement in living and being are all tied to any choices or actions that we make, even, uh, even the Don't you think you're, choices that we make. It seems like you're packing a lot into a verse. It seems like you're trying to eisegete something out of a verse that it, it, it doesn't say enough to conclude uh, exhaustive divine determinism must be true if we live and move and have our being in him. But I, I don't, I don't see this. Movement, but wouldn't movement and being have to do with those things that we actually do? Movement and action are part of our being. It's part of what is, it means is to Satan, Is Satan in him? In the truest sense, is 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 in him uh, that he cannot exist without God, and that's what we mean here. We're not okay. saying in him salvifically. We're talking in him as in our existence as human beings. Okay, so in him we live, move, and have our being. Yes. Okay, so if if I move freely in him, how is that? How is moving? Or if I move deterministically in him, let's let's say both are true. Let's just say in this world over here, I'm moving deterministically in him, and this one over here, I'm moving freely in him. How does this verse, does, does, how, how does this verse tell us which one of those things is true? I'm not so, sure I understand the question because what we're saying I, I, is I that I think it, I might have an idea. Let me if I can chime. So okay, sure. Go again, ahead. Because, way I was saying earlier, the omnipotence and everything else, and the omniscience—they really are. You know, none of his attributes are standalone. They all are intertwined with one another. You know, and that's, again, that's why there are no parts. It's just God is. So if it's free in true freedom, true unadulterated freedom. That means that there is nothing that has determined, nothing that has necessitated, nothing that has deterministically caused. There is true freedom to do whatever. And if there is true freedom, there is no way that God can 100% from eternity past know Absolutely. So you deny omniscience, right? Without, no, well, I I would say that he does know, therefore I don't deny the omniscience. I would say in order for that to be... So he has to determine it to know it. In other words, God doesn't know what we will determine to do. He can't know what we will determine to do. He has to determine it in order to know it. So you've denied omniscience in the sense that he can't can't know anything... He can't know anything that he doesn't determine. Your view is that God can't know anything that he doesn't determine. It's that if he has not determined it, and man is the ter- determining factor of it. I think again, I, like I said, I, there's some things that don't need to be refuted. They just need to be clearly stated. You yeah. believe that God can't know something unless he determines it. Okay, we can move on. So let's look at the scriptures. The, the periods and boundaries of their dwelling place that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each of us. Okay, so that, that's the lead in to this verse that they should seek and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us. For in him we live, move, and have our being. And you're suggesting that teaches exhaustive divine determinism. Clearly, that's your verse that you're hanging this thing on. We're not saying that it's teaching in and of itself determinism. We're saying that our movement, including sinful actions, are are immediately caused by God since we are not word cause? Where's the word cause in this verse? Well, we move in him. We can't move apart from God. So God must be the one moving us. And so God must be causing 
So God must be causing the molester to desire to molest that child in order for this verse to be true. Would that, part, would, that, that, yes. would that be part of the all things okay. in Ephesians Again, 111 that God works some, all things? Some statements don't have to be refuted. They just have to be stated clearly in order for people to hear them and to know uh, that they are irrational that, and self-refutable. That's, well, and that's so I'm, I'm just like a flat and, earth world. Yeah. I can just get them to state their statement clearly, oh. and I don't have to refute it. I just got to go, okay, uh, you guys hear, okay. hear what we're dealing with here. We're, we're now uh, on the plane with flat earths. Okay. okay. <laughs> I, I'm sorry, but I'm just saying this. Guys, there are verses of Scripture that that just are so crystal clear. And when you can take a verse and say the exact opposite of what that verse says, and it fits perfectly within your doctrinal system, and love, I'm just going to have to call you out and say, Repent. That is but, wrong. But, that but is absolutely Ephesians, wrong. Late in Ephesians 1.11. I know, I know you've done a full yeah. video on it as well. Of course, yes. But in Ephesians 1.11, it, it says, you know, he works all things after Present, you know, presently, the counsel of his will. Works all things. So therefore, all after the counsel of his will, not after a counsel of our will, not after the counsel of what possibilities might be, not some things in accordance with, not some things just directly related to salvation, but literally all things. Quick question, Travis. Are you using this verse to support the concept that God has in eternity past sovereignly decreed whatsoever comes to pass? Because in this verse, he is actively presently, according to the tense of the verbs, actively presently working all things in accordance with his will. And you're using it to prove that God has already predetermined everything that will happen. Is that, is that accurate? In a sense, because if God is not actively over his creation, then creation would cease to exist. So okay. in that sense, God holds, you even you know admitted yourself, you can't take the next breath without God. So in a, God has eternally decreed all things according to the counsel of his will, and then as it plays out, God is in all things, holding all things together. And without him being over all things, we cease to exist. So as we actively play out, as we are finite but who, beings. Who ceases to exist? A free moral creature or a determined creature? That's the question up for debate. The, the point everything. of contention is not whether we would cease to exist without God. We all agree with that. The point of contention is, what are we? Are we free moral creatures who have the ability to make free moral choices, or are we determined creatures who are only doing what God has scripted for us to do in eternity past? That's the question up for debate. We are and so, free moral l- creatures who will perform what God has eternally decreed from eternity past. Well, I think if, free yeah. creatures. I well, think if you that's, that's if you call difference. like like Eric, I think already pointed out, we don't have to go over it again. But to say you're compatibilistically free is just pushing the goalpost back one step because you're ultimately saying. You're free as long as you're doing what you desire, but your desires are ultimately controlled by the divine decree, which is just another form of determinism, and it doesn't really mean anything except it's just a. In other words, it's it's the same same concept. But but in can in, I add some context? First, well, real quick, let me do Ephesians one eleven. Sure. I, I just want to say that that is a parallel to Romans eight twenty eight, that God works all things for those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. In other words, God working things good, redeeming the evil for good for his people is the same context as what we see here. Those who are in Christ through faith, these blessings have been predestined for them. These are the promises that God will bring about his He will work all things together for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's the context of Ephesians 1.11 from our perspective. I just wanted to make sure the audience heard from our perspective versus what you just heard the particular Baptist say particular Baptists think that this verse means that God eternally decreed every thought, action, and deed of every heinous, evil criminal. What we're saying, we, yeah, what we're saying the verse means 
is that in Christ, um, God has destined beforehand that in him, he will redeem and work all things together for his good purposes. You, you as the audience, using your own free will, can decide which is more reasonable. But so we I, can move I think, on. Yeah. I think that kind of ties in, you know, to, you mentioned it earlier, you, you glossed over it, the sting analogy. I would say what we just had, had there, that would tie into your analogy that you use the police sting. And, you know, I wrote a little thing as I was formulating my thoughts, you know, on that when I first heard it. And so just for the sake of not stumbling, I'll, I'll just read the short blurb that I have on it. But what I said in response to it was, you know, here's why the argument is flawed. The police officers didn't have to plan and orchestrate every single prior activity of the drug dealer because their plan was set in place after learning he was a drug dealer. It was a plan conceived in time that was entirely dependent upon the accuracy of knowledge gained through external sources. They didn't have to plan this particular sting operation thousands of years prior while orchestrating each and every intent through time to ensure the man would become a drug dealer who could be busted in the year 2020. By conceding that any events at all could be orchestrated and ensured to cause a determined outcome, this only opens the door to, at a minimum, times where humans are bound to, plan, bound to a plan of God and not truly free to act differently. Otherwise, it opens the possibility that he never would have had the opportunity. Oh, sorry. It opens the door to the possibility that Christ couldn't or could have never been betrayed and crucified, which ultimately leads to the possibility that he never would have had the opportunity to resurrect himself. Admitting Calvary was an intricately detailed and orchestrated act that had to happen means you must also believe humans were not tr truly free in this moment in history, at least in regard to the events leading to Calvary. And furthermore, in order to ensure these particular acts occurred, God had to also plan in each and every other act in human history that would lead up to that particular moment, which is why the analogy of the police sting is fatally flawed from the start. Okay, um, this is where you uh, miss the point of the analogy. Um, and you could do this with biblical analogies too, like the prodigal son story. You could say, well, you know, fathers don't have just, Jesus doesn't have, I mean, God doesn't have just two sons and they're not, there's females too, or you could, you could talk about a whole different plethora of problems with uh, analogies that aren't one-to-one -one ratio. The point of this placing analogy is, is very singular. It's very simple. It's that even human beings can bring about a evil event, the selling of drugs for a good purpose without causally determining for those people involved to be evil. In other words, they can do that through knowledge. In the same way, all of the things you just listed can be accomplished through omniscience, not omnideterminism. In other words, God can know and use creatures for his own purposes without being the one who causally determines his creatures to be evil. That's what our point is. Is that beyond our full comprehension? Absolutely. There's not, there's not any claim from either one of us, I think, that we have full comprehension of how God works in all his ways. The question is, what does divine revelation say with regard to God's involvement with creatures evil? And it, it over and over again, talks about his holiness, his separateness, his, his not even tempting men to evil, that pride and lust are not from the Father, but from the world, consistently distancing God from the evil of creation. And what I think Calvinism does, at least the form of Calvinism that I'm talking to here, most especially, it puts those things back together and ultimately nullifies the very clear revelations. Now, I jumped in and, and interrupted Eric earlier, and I never gave him opportunity to respond. So I feel bad about that. But Eric, did you want to add something or did we already leave behind that point that you wanted to make? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, I just wanted to touch back uh, uh, on the uh, um, 
the the passage we're talking about uh, Acts 17 28 and to give some context here because I think it'll help also uh, better explain the situation because there's a few things that need to be said uh, first what Leighton was saying was that we can still move in God and yet be free so libertarian free will doesn't mean you don't move in God but more pertinently to the passage if you read like you said uh, he was he was talking to people and and, and you know even to the philosophers but in this in situation well, let's take the, the passage in context in verse 23 he says, you know, talks about the inscription to the unknown God. And he's like, I'm going to proclaim this God to you. So immediately we know the context here is that he is speaking from their perspective. That's an important thing to note. He is not speaking from our theological perspective. He's kind of stooping down to their own worldview. Then he says, the God who made the world and everything in it, the Lord heaven and earth does not live in temples made by man. So the first thing he's trying to establish is whatever this God is that you have neglected, First of all, it's not a God that can fit into something made by human hands. In fact, this backs up the very verse that you guys are quoting uh, um, when it says, verse 27, verse 28. Now, note the very thing you quoted, technically speaking, comes from pagan poets, not from scripture itself. In other words, scripture is recording pagan poets here. Uh, so, what you're reading here is is something that is being quoted again not from quote scripture but from pagan poets and here's what he says he says um in him we live and move and have our being that is from a pagan poet and then mm -hmm. says even some of your poets said we're his offspring those two lines in him we live and move and have our being and indeed we're his offspring obviously the people he he was talking to weren't saved so they can't be called children of god yet he's saying they're children of god with respect to how they would have understood that so I say all that to say, verse 29, he says, so whoever this God is, well, he doesn't say that, I'm paraphrasing, is not a divine being made with gold or silver or an image formed by the art or imagination of man. Here's what he's saying. Whoever this God is that you have neglected is a creator of all things. And just like your poets say, in this creator of all things, we live and move and have our being. That idol over there in the corner is too small for me to fit in. I can't live in it. I can't move in it, nor can I have my being. So whatever God that you neglected is a creator of all things, and he's so big that he cannot fit into an idol. Hence, the God that we're talking about here can't fit into that idol because I can't live, move, and have my being within that idol. So that idol cannot be the God that you have been neglecting. That is Paul's argument, philosophically speaking, in that context. However, that was still well, so. the spirit who spoke that. So though it was originally a, po a pagan poet who said it, God, even a broken clock is right twice a day. In that case there, Paul is reiterating he, the fact. He, he, but Travis, he's not, not saying Paul, that he's. I'm sorry, it was, uh, it was word acts. He's not saying that yeah. it's wrong. He's saying he's just giving you the context in which he's saying it and what he's addressing. Yeah, yeah no, no, not I understand saying that, that it's wrong. Yeah. yeah, because that. obviously they weren't the offspring of God, right? They weren't they weren't children of God. Yet Paul says children of God in the salvific, yeah, saying, in the salvific sense, he, yeah, right. right. So why is he saying that? Because that he is quoting their poets, and they would have understood that to mean we come from this God, not as children in the salvific sense. So in other words, he's taking their, if you will, theological concepts, but applying it to his own. So you can't take their theological concepts and apply them one to one ratio. The way we can't impose our theological concepts onto their pagan theological concepts and assume Paul is using uh, those words to uh, uh, give a one-to-one -one ratio of what we mean when we say children of God, much like the live, move, and have our being. He's simply implying we can't live and move and have our being in that little idol there because it's not big enough for me to fit in.
So that's where we might disagree then on the intent of that usage. You might say, well, Paul is using an analogy that can't be a one for one, but he's trying to make a relation with, but his underlying point wasn't necessarily exactly that. Whereas we would say that that was God worked, or I keep saying Paul, I don't know why I keep saying that <laughs> word acts, you know, so, but that, uh, you know, that God, you know, is speaking that essentially that that is actual now divine truth being spoken. Not that the author of that phrase was divinely inspired when he wrote it, being a pagan author, but that it is 100% truthful in all things that are divine. Okay. So we may just have a difference in the intent. Well, behind again, just, just to be clear in what Eric was just saying, he is not saying that that verse, because it was quoted from a pagan author, isn't true. He's saying that he's quoting from that pagan author in their context in order to explain a specific point. And that specific point mm-hmm. is you can't move and have your being in that altar over there. You can move and have your being in him, in Christ, in God. And, and that's the point he's making. He's not making the point of exhausted divine determinism, which is what you're reading eisegetically into that text. And I would say that you're coming at it from a perspective of – because. We all start with our presuppositions, regardless whether we want to or not. We have a presupposition in how God works, and you guys have a presupposition in how you believe God works. So because of that, we're going to approach the scriptures with our underlying belief of how God works. I just think it would be a a huge stretch to suggest that Paul, when speaking to these people, is trying to teach them divine exhaustive determinism by by quoting from their own uh, source here in this context. I just... Again, some some statements don't have to be refuted. I think they just have to be clearly laid out there for people to hear and, and, and decide and, for themselves. And there's a point I was making is that it's right. If we set aside our presuppositions and look at the historical context, the meaning of the verse, and the meaning of what they meant within that pagan poetry, then there is no indication with that contextual understanding that Paul is trying to teach causal determinism. What he's trying to teach is what I laid out. That is my, my assumption of presupposition. That is a historical context regarding that passage, regarding those people, regarding their beliefs, and regarding that specific quote by that pagan poet. So there's no presuppositions in what I said. That is how Paul intended it and gave it. And we know that given the historical backing to where that poet, those lines of poetry came from. Oh, yeah, never mind. Wait, where? I'm totally in the wrong spot right here. Oh, let me reopen up my Bible. One second, I came out of the wrong. Keep talking. I'm, I'll pull this up behind the scenes. No, I mean, uh, j- I mean, j- j- just that. In other words, if 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 you're gonna to explain it the way you're saying it, you're gonna have to give yeah. some background to the context of that is what they would have understood within their pagan poetry. But as I've explained, that's that's not the context or or setting of those lines of poetry. Yeah, going back, uh, there's a reason I kept saying Paul over and over again, <laughs> but because it's in Acts, I kept saying, "Oh no, not Paul. No, yeah, absolutely, Paul. We're good." <laughs> I think I keep thinking. Yeah, I wasn't so, sure. I wasn't sure where you were, like if you were quoting from another verse that you were. Yeah, the no, same with Paul or that, something. That, I wasn't sure that, where you were coming from. Brain fart on my part. That's yeah, all. No <laughs> worries. Author was not Paul. I can't tell you Acts, how many times Paul was speaking. So. I can't tell me how many times I've called Peter Paul or Paul Peter or <laughs> yeah, you know, or Luke, you know, Paul or whatever. So, well, uh, well, guys, I I know we're cut. Oh, go ahead, Eric. I'm sorry. Well, well, I was gonna say, uh, uh, and I know we're cutting short on time, but. You know, we're, we're talking because there's a lot of things we kind of talk past each other, not been able to explain, or, you know, there's always more points brought up when we give answers. But um, earlier you were saying that, you know, God, 
because it seems like you assume that I believe God only knows the possibilities when that's not the case, especially with Molinism. God doesn't just know the possibilities, but what will actually take place. But skipping that over, let me at least say this. When we all sin, and, and when we sin, we repent. We repent because we did something we should not have done. So we're repenting because we could have refrained from sinning. Now, that's a dual ability there. That, that's contra-causal freedom. And this is backed up by Scripture that says that God has uh, provided a way of escape in 1 Corinthians 10, 13. So with that being said, it seems like every time that we, you, I, or Leighton sin, we repent because we could have not sinned. And the Bible says God has provided a way of escape. So how does that fit within your conception that I could have done otherwise, yet on your view, I could not have done otherwise, but yet scripture seems to indicate that, yes, indeed, we could have done otherwise when it came to sinning. You want to take uh, a stab at that, Travis? Yeah, what's that? You want to take a stab at that? Yeah, sure. I would, again, just bring that down to the finite versus the infinite. You know, we have, from our perspective, we have the ability to not. And it's a very real... But what other perspective is there than ours? Well, there's I mean, God's... There's and it God's, seems like you're said, saying you that the Bible is a relation of God to us, but the relation even within the Trinity. But what I'm saying for practical for practical purposes for theology, theology, we're, we're we are we are not God. I mean, obviously. So, in what practical way are we talking about anything but from our perspective? And so, in other words, if I say, okay, yesterday I lied, okay, let's say all four of us lied yesterday at noon, could I have done otherwise? We would say, absolutely, of course we could have done otherwise. No temptation has overcome you that you that's not resistible. I could have resisted the temptation to lie. I lied. It's my fault. I did it. God didn't sovereignly and unchangeably causally decree for me to lie. I did it. I could have and should have done otherwise. And and what and that's my that's from my perspective, because what other perspective can I possibly express except for mine? And so if you're trying to say, okay, well, from God's perspective, Leighton could not have done otherwise, then why would God lie by saying, I would never tempt you beyond what you can bear? Why would God misrepresent his perspective by telling us something that's not true, if indeed we can't do otherwise when we lie? Yeah, and that's I what think... I was going to say. It seems like you're kind of casting shade on the Bible, and I said it respectfully. It seems like you're saying, yeah, the Bible says we could have done otherwise, but that's from, from our his perspective, perspective. You really couldn't so have. It's like you need to make up like a new, uh, a tr like amplified passion translation where it says, you know, uh, and God made a way to escape. We could have done otherwise, and then you know, in brackets. But that's just from our perspective. Wink, wink, and then you know, go on with the verse. But clearly, the verse doesn't say that. Otherwise, you're going to have to say, well, the Bible really means this, even though it says this, which kind of makes God. I mean, kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth there. So Sproul, R.C. Sproul, you know, kind of addressed it using an analogy of chairs. Are you guys familiar with that one? The sitting down in the chairs? Maybe if you say it, I'll remember it, but uh, not off the top of my head. Right. So essentially he talked about, you know, the ability to sit down in a chair and freely sit in the chair, you know, or I think if I remember correctly, as many years ago, the ability to choose to sit in another chair, you know, and if we know that God wants us to sit in that chair and then we'd be free to yeah, well, I'm going to sit in that chair right over there. You know, well, then did we violate God's will? Did we go against God's plan? And we would say no, because though we freely did so, we really played into God's ultimate decree and plan of every facet of creation that it was God's ultimate, you know, hidden decree that we are not privy to, that we would wind up sitting in that chair in opposition to what he has declared of us. 
But go back to the verse. I, I'm not with all respect. I don't know. That's just a, that was an analogy. That wasn't a okay. that was an analogy. So if we're talking, you know, about us and freedom, and could we sin or could we not sin? We, you know, God has want, you know, He's commanded us to be perfect, holy as He is holy, you know, and to not sin. But at the same time, we do sin. We sin every day. Some do so willingly. Some do so out of, I don't want to say not willingly, but rather convictingly afterwards, you know, because we have the spirit convicting us of it. For so, the sake of time, can I just press you on First Corinthians 10, 13? Could we have refrained from sinning in every single case, as scripture pull, tells us? Let me pull up First Corinthians 10, 13 here so I have it in front of me. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Again, so when that comes to us and how we are living in life with God, what do we see? Do you think We see it as this is what we're doing, and we act in accordance with what we want to do and our desires. Do you think God is looking down at us and saying, what is he going to do? I hope he does this. I'll provide a way if only he looks to me. Uh, what are they going to do? And then we looked away. No, God you knows agree exactly with this, what will happen. Do you agree with the verse? It's basically what I'm asking, not In how you sense? see it or how God sees it. Is it true? Is it I mean, true? The As verse says, itself would be we, true. How is our interpretation of the verse, though? <laughs> well, I don't even think the verse needs to be interpreted. When well, you sinned, just, I mean, just to answer the question again, using the supposition we all lied yesterday at noon. Okay. Travis. Um, I'm an accountability partner sitting with you. Um, why did why did you lie yesterday at noon? Could you have done otherwise? We know you should have done otherwise. My question is, could could you ha could you have resisted that temptation to lie? I'm going to say big picture, no. But that doesn't mean that I should succumb and say, well, you know what, fatalism. We're just you know no no reason to care. God okay. has determined everything. So in other words, what Eric's pushing on is that in other words, that verse could say the exact opposite of what it says, and it would be consistent with your doctrine. But that would not be encouragement to people whatsoever. There's a certain sense of encouragement that God. So the Bible lies us to be to encouraging. There's nothing of a lie in there. Right. That we so have our relation. What you're okay, doing the is you're the verse... God's view and interaction with people and people's views interaction with each other and with God. And they're not the same at all. Okay. The verse says no temptation is irresistible. In other words, you can resist the temptation as a Christian. And you're saying you could not have resisted the temptation to lie yesterday. How is that not just contradicting the verse? Well, I mean, first, well, right we here, could have... no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. You know, so, but then if we have on here that he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but if the ability fails every time, well, that would mean that if well, it didn't fail every time, period, sometimes you resisted or, or any times. But if it says here that he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, well, in that case, that if any, that would have to deny the existence of sin now, because well, people are always, you know, will not let you go beyond your ability. So if my ability, if I sin at that moment, maybe okay, you know, the ability to not sin, but in a practical sense, I didn't have the ability because whatever factors were in me. All okay. the extraneous factors. My only ability at that moment was to make the decision that I made. Okay, so l let me just push on this, the practical side of this. Um, this comes from my testimony when I was a Calvinist. And the, so this is where the, the road meet, the, the rubber meets the road when it comes to these things. Uh, back when I was a Calvinistic, and I'm not putting this on to you guys as Calvinists. I'm not, I'm not trying to equate my story with all Calvinists. This just is my testimony, okay? Um, there, there, was a, there was a sense in which 
because I held to a deterministic logic and these kinds of things, I, I, I had fallen into an addiction in my early years uh, with regard to pornography and internet had come out about the time I was in college. And one of the things I struggle with is because pornography is such an addictive type of behavior that I couldn't, I couldn't come to a point where I could stop doing it, even though I'd continue to promise myself I'd stop. You know how that works. Every, every guy deals with this kind of stuff at one point or another, but I, I would promise myself, I'm not going to do this anymore, but then I would do it again. And while holding to this deterministic worldview, I was ultimately holding to a view that said, well, the reason you looked at pornography yesterday, Leighton, is because, well, ultimately, God causally determined your desires to look at pornography yesterday. I mean, and so therefore, my only real uh, appeal is to God, is to say, God, take away that desire. I, 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 you have to do something. I, I wasn't taking ownership for that for myself, saying, listening to verses like 1 Corinthians and saying, no, I have given you all that you need to resist the temptation. It is on you now, Leighton. That is your responsibility, not mine. It's on you. And so when I looked at pornography, I had to own that. I had to say, this is something Leighton chose to do. It's my responsibility, not a causal decree of God. And, and again, I'm not saying, again, all Calvinists do this, but what I had done is I had punted my responsibility, at least philosophically in my brain, to God. And therefore, instead of finding healing by owning my own sin, I was putting it back onto God saying, God, you have to do this. And, and I was passively waiting for him to take a action because it's it, he's ultimately the one causing my desires here. He's ultimately the one in control of what I desire to do versus me owning that for myself, recognizing he's given me all that I need to resist temptation by following what the scripture tells me to do, to confess to others, to find healing, to become open and transparent with my, 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 my spouse and others around me in order to have accountability, uh, in order to, to, to have healing, to find healing. I've got to own that as mine and not put it back onto God. Now, this is where the rubber meets the road. This is where it becomes practical. When you say, ultimately, I lied yesterday at noon, and I couldn't have done otherwise because God sovereignly and unchangeably decreed me to lie. That can, whether you like it or not, Travis, it can cause your listeners, some of them, to wrongly become fatalistic in their ways of applying these things. It can cause them to apply these things in such a way that they feel that they don't have ultimately any control over their thoughts, actions, and behaviors, and thus fall into addictions that become much more serious because of the fatalistic application of the claims of your system. Do you understand my concern? I can see it's a concern, true pastoral but, concern here. But you also said it would wrongly become that. So there could be a concern, but there could also be the concerns in the other that now in the position you're putting, it's all on yourself and on your own working, and it's not necessarily on the spirit dwelling within and sanctification and well, that would be in a direct, that would be direct myself. opposition to my actual claims, because we, we don't believe you can do anything without the provision of God's grace. We just don't believe that provision is irresistible or effectual. And so that would be an exact, that would be an, an exact opposite of what we claim. I'm not saying just, anything different than what you claim. You actually claim God did causally determine for your sin yesterday. And so, what you, so in other words, your objection actually flies in the face of something we actually claim. Um, in other words, you're, you're not opposing my actual view. You're opposing something that we don't actually believe. I'm opposing an actual claim of your system that God causally determined your sin yesterday for you to look at pornography. And if you looked at, not you, but whoever, I'm not trying to put it down on anybody, but whoever looked at pornography yesterday as a Christian did so by sovereign decree causally and could not have done otherwise. The addiction that you have was in a sense of like a, I had 
one Calvinist tell me it was like a thorn in the flesh. God gives some Calvinists, I mean, some Christians thorns in the flesh to keep them humble. And he gives them some addictions like addiction to pornography or homosexuality or all these different kinds of things. He gives them these addictions to keep them humble. And, and that's that's the claim of the system itself. It's not it's not a misapplication of the system. I'd say that would be somebody claiming Calvinism didn't really understand Calvinism, tried using it as a justification for their sin. So, Dr. Flowers, would would you believe that our position would assert that humans are puppets or robots if God is the one decreeing and therefore we're just acting out his decree and, and that's why the onus I'd, would be on God I'd and say, not us? I'd say more like you're passive lumps of clay being shaped and molded into either vessels of reprobation or vessels of salvation um, as the application of Romans nine is. So at least puppets and robots can be made to look really pretty on Calvinism. It's just mud. So, um, (laughs) uh, so I would say puppets and robots would be a a step up from what the Calvinistic system is actually claiming with regard to its interpretation of Romans nine. It's false interpretation in my estimation of Romans nine. So you would think that from the Calvinist perspective, Calvinistic perspective, we're just simply passive agents of God's work in his decree. For all practical purposes, yes. Okay. Okay. But notice I said practical purposes, because I understand that you have nuances of secondary causes, i.e. God causes the desire, and therefore you're acting freely because you're doing what you want to do. But Yes, we, we believe we are actually agents. We're not just puppets or robots receiving action. We are actually agents that are active, um, even though God is the mover behind well, all of okay. our actions. So you're a wet robot with agency. <laughs> In other words, you can just add whatever uh, well, suppo- supposition no, to the argument. If we you would disagree. To. I mean, because well, of course, ro- I know, ro- I mean, yeah, that's the uh, robots robot. and puppets aren't agents in their own they, right. Right. Um, but my pushback right. is my pushback on that is that if you're going to interpret Romans nine and the, the Potter clay analogy to mean as Calvin does, as most Calvinists do, that you have no more ultimately control over your desires, choices, and actions as a pot does over its shape and its use in the hands of a potter, then own the analogy. I mean, th- that analogy is ultimately saying that, the, that, that God is the one who has created this person either for salvation or damnation, either for good works or for a dishonorable use. Um, it, it, is, it is causally within his hands as the potter. And if you're going to interpret that verse to mean that, then what's wrong with other analogies that draw the exact same conclusion? And, and so instead of objecting to these robot puppet analogies and all these kinds of things, I would say just own it and say, uh, actually, that's a step up. I, I mean, in, in, on Calvinism, we're mud. We don't even look pretty. And, and so um, th- that's just the claim of the system itself, not, not my accusation against it. There's, right. there's a thought experiment I have on compatibilism. I'd like to hear you guys' thoughts. Okay. If we have time. So <clears throat> let's assume for the sake of argument that compatibilism is true. And on compatibilism, which is a philosophical system, um, uh, uh, because a lot of times, you know, there's the accusation, oh, you're using philosophy. Well, compatibilism is philosophy. Um, and, and I would love to know what you guys mean by compatibilism. But to set that aside for now, on compatibilism, your actions and will are necessarily caused by your strongest desire. And you cannot do other than your strongest desire. Let's suppose that's true for the sake of argument. Suppose there's a mad scientist who's in love with this woman who's a faithful five-point Calvinist, faithful to her husband, hates this scientist, cannot stand him, has a restraining order, and has you know five beautiful children, and she's against adultery. But suppose compatibilism is true, and this mad scientist was able to somehow put electrodes in her brain that gave her the strongest desire to want to love the mad scientist. He does this when she wakes up, 
She has the strongest desire to love the mad scientist, so she commits adultery, leaves her children, leaves her family, and runs off with the mad scientist. Here's my question. According to your view, you're free if you do what you want and will. She's doing what she wants and wills, but her wants and wills is causally determined by the mad scientist. My question, is she a victim or is she, does she have free will and is she genuinely in love and we should you know, throw a celebration and go to her wedding? So my answer to that would be um, that I would say that falls into a category error because it's making assumptions about God from a, a human. I haven't brought in God yet. Let's just talk about the situation. Let's not even but bring God in. I know, but I know I've heard you use this analogy before. Um, okay. You did an episode with Dr. Flowers on your um, uh, debate with Derek Morrell. Um, yeah, it's no but secret, you, but yeah, yeah, let's yeah. Just stick with the analogy though. And then, and then if you want, then we can bring God in and then you can give your, your caveats to that. But in the situation of this analogy, is she a victim or, is, or should we celebrate her, her newfound happiness? Um, in this case, it would be, she would be a victim. Okay. Okay, now go ahead and, and, you know, now, of course, then I would say, okay, now let's apply this to God. Now, what would your explanation there be? Yeah, so I would say this would be a category error. Um, I think the problem with analogies like this is they try to read back to God standards that man uh, has in terms of what the will means instead of the other way around. So I would say that the mad scientist, um, even though he's putting those electrodes in those person's mind to bring about a certain end, um, He's victimizing that woman because from a human perspective, especially from the human perspective related to God's law, there are certain prescriptions that someone is supposed to do. And the question is, from a deterministic point of view, is God morally obligated to decree um, all that is good in man's will or all that will come to pass? Um, and I, now you're getting into, you know, you're getting into a different category. Is the mad scientist upholding the world by the word of his power and causing all things to come to pass, as we talked about in Acts 17. I know you guys disagree with that interpretation, um, but I, I think this this analogy creates a category error in bringing God down to a level um, that really would not play itself out in any situation. Well, well, let me ask this. Are there people who cheat on their spouses and leave their spouses for someone else? Absolutely. Okay, so on your view, God causally determined that and decreed that. Yes. So where's the difference? Um, because we would say that the deficiency is not in God, it is in the creature, because as we Why? already, yeah, as we talked about already, that sin is simply a deformity or deficiency. It's a lacking of something. It's not something that actually exists. So God decreeing it or bringing it about to pass does not create anything positively in the creature. But, but adultery is a thing that people do. That it's a thing that people does. do, right? but the, the sinfulness of it is not lust, itself. Existent. Lust is an actual... Lust, lust and pride is an actual thing that exists, right? It's some. It's a deficiency in the creature. It's not an actual thing that was created or part of the creation of God. But if the mad scientist created this deficiency by way of the strongest desire, assuming compatibilism is true, then does God not do the same thing in order to bring about his causal determinative de decree? No. No. Um, and, and I would say that if that person is bringing out their strongest desire, um, that's not in violation of that person's will it's just they're actually moving with regards to what that mad scientist has programmed in where, that person where do we mind. get our strongest desires from on your view um i believe that our strongest desires um i, I guess we've already established this decree. they come ultimately from god's decree right okay, so it's animal it. instinct in other words just like the the lion prefers meat over grass because god created him to prefer meat over grass so too uh the individual prefers god over 
Satan if he's been created for that end, or he prefers Satan over God if he's been created for that end. And so it's an instinct, instinctive reflex, not a, a free moral choice in my estimation. And so in the same way that you would not hold a lion ultimately morally responsible for eating meat over grass, uh, it seems irrational to hold men responsible for uh, acting upon instinctive reflex that God has created them to act upon, i.e. he caused them to desire one thing over another from birth that they have ultimately no control over. Well, I mean, animals aren't made in the image of God. They don't have prescriptive rules given to them. Okay, let's say they do. Let's say, let's just give that lion now a, a, let's just pretend, suppose he has the image of God's nature now. He has all those things. What's the difference between man and uh, a lion's instinctive reflexes and what what you're claiming on compatibilism? Well, in that case, it wouldn't be just an instinctive reflex anymore. Why not? What's the difference between the instinctive reflex of a lion choosing to eat meat instead of grass and the choice of a man to reject the gospel or to accept it? Because man is reasoning, has that logic. And okay, let's say is, the lion reasons. It, well, they're reasoning and saying, you know, I know it's wrong to destroy that antelope over there and that gazelle, but I choose to do it anyway. Well, that's not what's happening in real life. Yeah, okay, so life. if the lion was reasoning, then he would be an accountable creature. If he was reasoning oh, about... yeah, because then it wouldn't just be instinct anymore. And then okay, so it's we, not, now so we've it's, moved from So it's not just acting in accordance with the desire. Name. So it's not just acting in accordance with the desire. It's also acting in accordance with the desire as long as you're reasoning about it. But that but reasoning who is, will fall but, in line with it. Okay, but who on your system, on your worldview, who is causing one to reason this way versus that way? God ultimately being the primary right. cause okay. working so through you, the secondary you see, causes. You see the problem then. In other words, well, I even don't the see lion problem at all. But. Even the lion reasoning uh, to eat the antelope or not eat the antelope is in accordance with his instinct, not a moral choice of the lion himself. In other words, you have no ownership on which to put uh, the the blame or the onus upon the creature, because ultimately, the onus is on God. We are responsible, though, given our status as human beings, and given that God has given us a prescriptive will to follow, and given that um, our wills if they bend towards sin, that that's really where uh, the accountability is found in our actual so it, sounds like, it sounds like what you're saying is that God's ultimately responsible for your sin, but he holds you punishable for no, it. No, we don't believe that God is responsible from a culpability standpoint. He certainly causes it to happen. He certainly has decreed it He's to happen. He's the one who causes the response, so that would connote responsibility, but l- l- I'll use we your terminology then. That. Okay, well, we'll, yeah. we'll use and your terminology. Nobody, and nobody then. could put God on trial. All right. Again, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to use your own responsibility. In, in other words, you have you have God being the one who is the causal determiner of men's desires, choices, and actions, but yet He still justly punishes them for their desires, choices, and actions, and that's just inexplicable. Because they desire it and love it, and they and you desire it and love it. it. It's, yeah, and you desire it and love it because world. God decreed for you to desire it and love it. But it goes back to the mad scientist. Like, why, why is a woman a victim? Because she's being causally determined by her strongest desires, which are causally determined by the mad scientist. You replace God with the mad scientist, and now you have God causally determined the strongest desires to commit adultery. So the mad scientist has no ownership over the woman. God owns every last facet of creation. It's so it's worse creation. for God, then, because he has ownership and causes those strongest desires to commit adultery. God cannot violate anything. Assuming he is morally obligated to decree everything that which is good and not any evil in his creation. I'm not even sure what that means, but if he is decreeing the strongest desires and those strongest desires lead to adultery, which is sinful, which he tells us not to do, then you have God 
causally determining something that is sinful, much like the mad scientist did. And now the only difference is, well, God owns a woman as well because he made her. But the deformity is not in God as the mover and decreer. The deformity is in the creature who is lacking that which is good. <clears throat> so all you're saying is that the deformity is in the secondary intermediate cause. But if I kill someone with a gun, then the murder happened by way of the bullet penetrating the heart but we don't arrest the bullet we go back to the gun we don't blame the gun we blame the person because we assume they were the first mover so we could say well the deformity of the murder was in the bullet well all you're saying is within the chain of events here is where it happened right before the event came to pass i'm not talking about efficient causes i'm talking about the first primary cause being god brought about that action so we would even disagree what we we would even disagree with what we mean by secondary causes um if us as a secondary cause, we are agents that are active. We're not a bullet that is simply um, passive in its action and in its recipient of action. Uh, that's yeah, but a clear distinction kinda, to make. But but it goes back to what Layton's saying. If I cause dominoes to fall and give them consciousness, then I'm just having dominoes fall that are conscious. So that's essentially what I could boil it down to. Sure, you're an agent. If by agent you mean conscious, but you're still being called to determine by way of your strongest desire, which is caused to turn by something else, on your view, God. So you're just adding more steps and pushing back the goalposts, but you still have the same result. So it goes, we'll take back to Calvary again. We don't blame the hammer. The hammered the nails in. We can take it back to the person that hammered the nails in. We also take it back further that God causally determined every event that would happen at Calvary in that exact time of that exact moment. Nothing would deviate and nothing was looking ahead to say, is it going to fit in here? Because Christ, everything is to exalt Christ and glorify Christ, and everything is in line with God's determined action there, you know, with Christ. So in that, we still look at the person, and the person was in sin. We don't say God was in sin for determining that an innocent man would be murdered by other men. We're not putting God on trial there. We still hold the man accountable, but the man in acting with his own nature, was still 100% in the determined plan of God from eternity past that an innocent man should die. Yeah, but, but so so I like that you said it. We don't blame the hammer nail, we blame the person. But if you add a person as a secondary intermediate mover, then you go back to the other person that caused that person, namely God. So hey, look at the story of, of uh, no, the, the soldier with The, the soldier Uriah. holding the hammer, uh, sorry to just interrupt, the soldier holding yep. the hammer is just as as controlled as the hammer itself is in the hand of God. He's just a tool in the hand of God on your view. And that's, the, that's the point. And and uh, David, I'm sorry, what'd you say? No, oh, I just said Isaiah 10 in line oh, with yeah. what uh, Leighton <clears throat> so was saying. You look at David and Uriah. Um, David was blamed for the murder of Uriah, but David didn't kill Uriah. He wasn't the he wasn't the intermediate cause. He was the first cause of the chain of events that led to the death of, of Uriah. But God blamed David for the murder of Uriah, even though David wasn't the one that swung the sword. So why? Because David was the first mover in the causal chain of events. That is scripture showing that the first mover of the chain of events is responsible for the conclusion. Now, you apply that to God, and I think you have the same problem. Yeah, and I think you also have to address the the irrational concept and idea that the, the fact that God works with uh, free moral agents that are evil and prideful and lustful freely, knowing their lust, their pride, their choices completely, and gives his son over to their hands uh, to bring about the redemption of sin for the world somehow proves that he brought about all the sins that Christ died to redeem is absurd and self-defeating. It, it's, it's like God being the arsonist and the fireman. 
uh, he's going to set the fire and then send the means by which he's going to put the fire out. And then he's supposed to be glorified by this. This is, I think it's, again, it's just self-refuting. These are, again, once those kinds of statements, you really don't have to refute. You just have to state them clearly for people who are not already caught into the deterministic worldview to understand. And I think they begin to see the irrational uh, claims of the system itself. Um, and, and, I, and I think it has to be pointed out is maybe in closing here would be a good thing to point out is that on your worldview, everything that Eric and I have said in this discussion, every single syllable was sovereignly and unchangeably decreed by God, yet you think it's wrong. You think it was, there, there's some things we probably said that are heresy or evil. And so how rationally can you say, on one hand, God sovereignly and unchangeably caused that which I believe is evil, wrong, irrational, and should not have happened? Um, how, how can you hold those two seemingly contradictory concepts in uh, and how do you have a rational conversation with us, knowing that every syllable you say is also equally sovereignly brought to pass by God? So the the truth that you feel that you're saying is being brought to pass by God. The lies that you think we're saying are also equally brought to pass by a causal decree of God. How is this not God just ultimately arguing with himself and completely meaningless? Because we are not privy to God's nature there. Now going, or his plans. You're, you're the one telling us this is what's happening. Said. But going back to what you just said, it wouldn't make any sense. It's irrational, but that'd be just as irrational. And it's coming from a position that because you don't understand how God's decree is and reject what God's decree is, therefore it sounds irrational, just as it would sound irrational to say, but if you're just, you know, if God, why would God have even created anything if he really wants all men to be saved and wants this and wants that, and then we're going against the wants of God and we're performing that. And now God is going to be painting himself. Why would he have created anything just to paint we, himself? Our theodicy has all those answers for those questions if you want to go into them. But that, that's a that's a U2 fallacy. You have these problems too. We're, we're talking about the problem that you're claiming. But, but my if, point is you said it's irrational. And it's only irrational because you don't come to the understanding of what God's decree is. And that goes back to the very first point, God's decree. But I don't come to the understanding of what God's decree is because he decreed for me not to be able to understand it. And that is acceptable. We have to accept some things that we don't understand why God does the way he does, but we are not number one with God supporting us. God is working out his plan and we are his tools. We are his Again, clay. As, as, been, as, been the, as been the theme throughout this entire discussion, some things don't have to be refuted. You've just now said that God has decreed for me to under, not to be able to understand his decree. And yet you're fine with saying that I'm accountable for understanding his decree. And that's, uh, Again, completely irrational as far as I can tell. He maybe God maybe God will decree for me to understand irrational things one day and to accept them. I don't know, but go ahead, Eric. I'm sorry. I jumped uh, I, I uh, cut you off there. Hypothetical question. Hopefully it should be an easy answer. Let's suppose for the sake of argument that your view of God decreeing all things is correct, right? Just on, on the fact that God decrees our beliefs. Let's suppose that's true. Let's. Is it possible that God, in fact, does decree all of our beliefs, but my view and Leighton's view is the correct belief, and your beliefs are the wrong beliefs, but he has causally determined that you believe the wrong ones while we believe the right ones. Is that possible? You mean the way that we have the right ones and he's causally determined you guys have the wrong ones? Yeah, I'm sure. saying, what if we flip the switch? <laughs> no, I'm saying, what if we flip the switch? Is that possible? Is it possible that we're the ones that have the right ones, but he is causally determined for you guys to have the wrong beliefs? Is that possible? In the sense that God can do what he wants there, sure. However, that would also mean that nothing would make sense in what God is doing. So I would be, I'm very firm. But only because God determined you to believe that. Of God. 
But that's what I'm saying. But see, every anything you point to, if your beliefs are determined, anything you point to is going to fall back on what that was determined that God caused you to believe that. God caused you to believe something false and caused you to determine that you believe that your beliefs are backed up by Scripture. And we're back to the same point. If God has caused you to determine our beliefs for the sake of argument, I just ask, is it possible that our beliefs are true and y'all's are false? But God has determined that you believe that your beliefs are true and that your beliefs are backed up by Scripture when really – wink wink from his perspective they're not we're the ones with the right beliefs uh i will say it i'm kind of at this with all that i was like at that kind of moment there <laughs> i got lost in that <laughs> yeah I, th- I think he's just he's pointing out what william lane craig points to is the kind of the vertigo that sits in when you really begin to think of uh exhausted divine determinism and, and its claims uh and and i think it's i think it's pretty uh evident to those who are examining these things that that if your thoughts and your thoughts about your thoughts uh, and your beliefs about your beliefs are all determined by someone other than yourself, then there's a no rational basis on which to base your beliefs or your thoughts because ultimately it's not up to you and it's not even something that you're in control over. And, and therefore, this entire discussion is just meaningless. It's, it's a completely irrational and completely uh, baseless because it's ultimately God arguing with himself. It's, it's God using the vessel called latent flowers to make the statements that I'm making right now, which he causally determined for me to make. And then, and then he's also causally determining Travis Rogers to make the statements he's about to make right now. And then, and then, and he's also causally determining my thoughts about what Travis is thinking, i.e. my lack of understanding of what Travis is thinking, according to Travis. But of course, Travis is thinking about my thoughts and my lack of ability is also causally determined by God too, um, and so God is causally determined for Travis to think that I don't understand what God causally determined for me. Not to, It's just this dizzying, self-refuting mess of, of contradiction based upon what? Determinism that was introduced in the fifth century by Augustine. I mean, it, it's based uh, upon deterministic philosophy. I would say Stoicism. down to, well, that sounds confusing. Therefore, it can't be of God because I have to understand all of God's secret ways. Well, that's pretty much your plead with regard to omniscience. It's, it's so confusing and, and, and high and external. I can't understand how he would know the future free choices of creatures he doesn't control. He has to do it. So it, you, you make the same basic appeal is that because I can't understand how he knows future free choices, libertarianly free choices, he can just must not be able to do so. And so we, we can make that same accusation well, towards you. But ours comes from how, if he doesn't, how can he know it if he has to see it? see what will happen, how it could be eternally known it. Well, you know, the the, the possibility, he knows what will happen as well as what could, though never will slash couldn't happen. On our view, he knows it because of who he is. Okay. Um, Just like he, just because his power, he doesn't have power because he gains his power, like doing pushups, like he was saying. He, He has all power because of who he is. It's a part of his essence. And that's what you're not seemingly to get. You're, you're, you're thinking of, of knowledge as something God has to gain because you're thinking of it like human knowledge. You, you accused oh, us oh, earlier oh. of judging God by human standards. That's what we think you're doing. You're ultimately saying God's knowledge is like human knowledge and that if he, he would have to gain it if he has it. Well, that would that's be a not, part. We deny parts. Well, again, this is my accusation. Yeah, this is based upon an accusation I'm making against what your claims are. You're ultimately saying if omniscience is true, then, then the only way that omniscience can be true is if God knows what he's determined. He can't know what other people determine based upon a limited concept of omniscience as not the essence of God, but because it, it's something God sees and has to gain knowledge on. 
And neither one of us, Eric or myself, now you could talk to an open theist and he may come to the, the same conclusion as you because you and open theists are strange bedfellows in this regard. Uh, you, you make the same modal fallacy with regard to knowledge. But Eric and I are not making that modal fallacy. We're, we're saying that knowledge is based upon the essence of who God is, just like his omnipotence is based upon the essence of who he is. He's that's not gaining say. knowledge. That's exactly what we'd say. We'd say it is who God is, and he knows because he has decreed, not there is who God is, and then he knows because people are free, and he sees what they're doing, or he sees what they could do. No one's saying do. No, not saying no, that. that. That's, that's, the the log- that's the only logical. No, outcome. it's not. No, no, it's not. It's like saying Otherwise the only way God can. You just like now denied the very logic that you said we you accept, and that's again. It's I don't know like how to saying, explain that, but it's like saying the only way God can be omnipotent is if He did fifty push-ups a day. No, He can know something by His very nature. There's nothing He has to gain. He doesn't have to go out and get it. So no, that it's not the only way God can know things inherently by His very nature. And on your view, God, on I wrote this down earlier. On your view, God's omnipotence comes logically prior to His omniscience which I think is a little bit strange because you're pitting the attributes logically prior to each other without him mm, being omnipotent. Do to I believe God just well, is well, those things. Yeah. Let, well, let me explain that because I, I know he's you He's making an accusation. We, we, he's, he, he, he knows you're not making the, the positive claim. He's making an accusation he, of he just your claims would mean. Right. No, no, I, he said that we said it and he wrote it down that I no, said it. I said I wrote down something to say, to touch on something you said earlier, and then now I'm giving. And oh, okay. I, I thought you were wrong. saying I said that. Okay. No, no. So you so and what well, what you just said is that God knows it because He causes it, which means His knowledge and omniscience, however you want to define that, is going to have to be defined based on what He is able to cause. Which means, right. on your view, God's omniscience, uh, God's omnipotence, comes logically prior to God's omniscience. So you're pitting. Uh, uh, omniscience necessarily dependent on his omnipotence and limiting his omnipotence. And now you, you want to call it limiting based on creating creatures that cannot have free will. So in your view, God cannot be omniscient until he creates something. That I think is now putting parts to God, which you're a divine simplicitous. You know, I'd have to but, slap you on the wrist for that. But but <laughs> uh, but you know, it's 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 you're pitting attributes of God and making them logically prior and dependent on the other. So we would have I would take back. You know, Leighton, you mentioned about the, the lapsarian debates. We will not get into all that because that goes forever. But yes, in that, yes. there is a logical order of how we relate, just as there's a logical or the order salutis. You know, but. At the same time, God is. God is not working one thing, and then he plans and he works another thing, and then he plans and he works another thing in a linear timeline. However, we as rational beings, to make sense of God's eternal action and you know, it, and just his being, we apply a linear order to something to make sense of it. But that just because we apply that is not at all how God is. Okay, so if you, if you want to appeal to that, then why can't you say that my choice to lie yesterday— uh, is logically prior to God's knowledge of my lying yesterday at noon. In other words, you can still have the temporal differences of God in eternity past knowing all things, but you could say logically prior to God's knowing that I would choose to sin was my choice to sin. Say that one because, more time. Well, we're, unless, unless Dan has that. No, I'm just saying that's that's not what we're saying. We're saying that I'm not saying that's the, what you're saying. I'm, I'm, I'm saying that if you can use the lapsarian arguments and put logical orders to the decrees, why can't we as libertarians do the same thing with regard to omniscience and say that our choice to do X, Y, or Z is logically, not temporally, but logically prior to God's knowing 
that we would do X, Y, or Z. So, so I guess to go back to, so you are saying that God must gain something based on what we know. Is that what you're saying in that question? Just the same thing you have the, the, in the same way that you make arguments with regard to the decrees of God, the order, the logical order of decrees of God. I'm making the exact same argument from our perspective with regard to the logical order of our choices versus the knowledge of God. So it's not God learning because it's, it's only logically prior, not e- in eternity. It's not a temporal claim. Well, in the last logical debate, claim. there's nothing dealing with knowledge and there's nothing being, it's just simply how Maybe there God should be. Decreed. I don't think there should be. It's simply how God has decreed, and it's not. It has nothing to do with gaining anything. It was simply God acting. So that's right. why I think there's a distinction. We can't really reconcile those because one is simply God acting, whereas the other it opens up the question of did God know yet or did He gain? And you know, it's, I, I, that's why I think, I, I think there are category errors on there. Yeah. And I think we'll close there, guys. I, I know we can, these are deep topics and we can, we can go on until the cows come home about these things. Um, but Dr. Flowers and Eric, we really appreciate you guys coming home, uh, coming on our podcast. Uh, we hope we have been cordial towards you both. Um, you know, the, the intent was not to bring you on here and, and uh, create a, you know, to bash you guys. It, we wanted to have an honest discussion um, that was cordial and God honoring. And I hope we've done that today, uh, but we appreciate your time in discussing these things. You, you have been very cordial. And if I, and if I push too hard there in the middle, uh, I, I apologize again. I, I, well, I don't apologize. I, I think, about these things. Yeah, no, I, I, I think yeah. you're well, I think you're well within your right as uh, from what you believe to, to call me to repentance. If you feel that I'm sinning about something and, and, and I think that we can do that. You can call somebody in repentance and love. I mean, calling somebody to repentance or to change their view is a loving thing. And I, I care about you, Daniel, and I care about you, Travis, and, and I'm, I'm concerned about your doctrine for practical purposes, as, as you may be for mine. Uh, and maybe this, and maybe a broadcast uh, like this is not the place to, to call you out on that in public, but um, I, 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 so I don't apologize for that. But if, if you feel that I've pushed, I pushed too hard, I, I do apologize if I have pushed too hard in a public uh, format on your show. But um, I do love you guys, and I do appreciate the time that you've given us to to talk through these things. And they are difficult. They are. They, they are. are. There are a lot of yes. very deep philosophical things. It's one of the reasons I don't count. Uh, I don't cast Calvinist out of the kingdom, just like I don't cast open theists out of the kingdom. I think your guys are ultimately making the same philosophical errors uh, and interpretive errors. But um, nevertheless, I, I think that we can still love each other and look past some of those differences and, and pray. God's grace covers a multitude of sins. And a multitude of misinterpretations, apparently, hopefully. (laughs) Well, thank you, guys. Um, And we hope to uh, talk to you guys more in the future. But you guys have a great weekend, and uh, we'll talk soon. You as well. God bless. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you, guys.